This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. there. Good evening or good morning to you if you might be listening over the web after the fact or good day wherever you might be as you're listening to this program. This is Mike Hagan and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM, mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio. It's your listener-sponsored community radio, your imagination station, KOPN, and you're listening to it right now. And uh, Radio Orbit, every Monday from 11 p.m. until 2 a.m., we come to you every week and 
talk about interesting topics, or hopefully you think so. I always think so. Of course, I'm the one doing the show. So uh, if you're listening, I hope it's interesting to you. And uh, tonight, no different. My guest tonight is Michael Horn. And uh, if you know anything about UFOs or extraterrestrial stories and history, uh, then you'll be interested in the show tonight because Michael Horn is the North American representative, uh, media representative for Billy Meyer. And uh, actually his full name is Edward Albert Meyer. Uh, goes by the name of Billy. But anyway, the Billy Meyer story is uh, probably the most well-documented and uh, most time-tested of all of these uh, UFO ET stories, at least uh, that I've researched uh, over the over the years, and tonight we're going to be talking to Michael Horn about Billy Meyer, and that's coming up in about oh I don't know 50 minutes, 55 minutes, something like that. And uh, Billy Meyer, for those who aren't familiar, I'll give you just a little bit of background real fast. He's a uh, He's probably about 70 years old now, maybe even a little bit older than that, actually. We'll, we'll ask Michael, but he is a, uh, a farmer who lives in Switzerland in the Alps and was and has been just a regular guy most of his life. Uh, but the story is that many, many years ago, over 50 years ago, he was either contacted or somehow made contact with extraterrestrial biological entities from the constellation of the Pleiades and they go by they call themselves the Plejarans or Plejorans and uh, anyway Michael Horn uh, for 26 years 27 years now has researched the Billy Meyer story is personally familiar and friends with Billy Meyer and should be a really interesting conversation tonight between me and Michael and I'm um, uh, go into this as a skeptic as I hope you guys do as well uh, these stories are always fraught with contradiction and misunderstanding and lots of uh, uh, things that are difficult to uh, uh, to perceive and to uh, to reconcile especially when you come from uh, a reductionist, materialist, Cartesian society such as our own. So take that for what it's worth, but stick around for the next uh, uh, for the next couple hours, and you'll hear Michael Horn tell us the story of Billy Meyer. And it's a very interesting story, and it's one, as I said, that has uh, sort of withstood the test of time. Uh, the, the the story began in the early 70s, at least that's when it became publicized in uh, the early to mid 70s, and it has been debunked. Uh, as much as anything has been debunked, but it has still sort of come out uh, on top. And that's why I chose this story to cover. You know, I've always been interested in this stuff, but I don't talk about UFOs and ET too much just because of that exact reason. It's so muddy that it's very difficult to get, uh, to get information that you, can, that you can trust or that you can, uh, that you can believe is valid or that can be verified. And one of the interesting things about the Meyer story is that there's a bunch of stuff now that's historical. Uh, and it is verifiable because things have actually come down uh, the way that 
the way that he said that they would. And uh, so that's sort of a side note, but the interesting thing is that this, this story, as you, as you will see, will become less about UFOs and ET as it is about prediction and prophecy and ideas about the future. And this is what we'll be talking about with Michael Horn, again, the North American media representative for Billy Meyer, a Swiss farmer who believes that he was contacted by extraterrestrials and is in uh, continued contact with them to this day and has been for some 50 years. And he's, as I said, an older man now in his, in his 70s probably. So that's coming up uh, in just about 50 minutes. So stick around. In the meantime, uh, we'll do what we always do during the first hour here. Let me do a quick thank you to Debbie, Free Range Radio Theater. As always, bringing you fun stuff on Monday nights. The uh, Behind the Door, what a cool show that was Debbie just did. She always has, I don't know where she finds this stuff, but she finds these great old radio programs from the 40s and the 50s and the 30s and uh, who knows when. But anyway, she always does great stuff. So if you've been listening to Free Range Radio Theater, this uh, show tonight will probably dovetail pretty well with what Debbie was doing. So hopefully you'll stick around and uh, you'll be back again next Monday to hear Debbie's show. And of course, before Debbie, Calvin and Jason doing it up, jazz plus blues equals soul. Monday night's always fun. Entertainment at its finest on KOPN. And of course, stick around after my show for uh, uh, Curtis, the boogeyman, always rolling in around 2 o'clock playing some music for you and uh, doing a little bit of talk as well. So that's all coming up next week and uh, tonight after the show. Okay, thanks to uh, thanks to everybody listening over the web. I've got a lot of email over the last week. My gosh, the uh, the Jay Widener show really struck a chord or something. And I appreciate the response. Apparently everybody really, uh, really liked the show and was a lot of people were absolutely blown away by what Jay had to say. And if you're interested in that stuff uh, and if you didn't hear the show, go on to the web at uh, www.radioorbit.com that's R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T dot com and go to the archives page and you can listen to the show if you missed it last week but the Jay Widener show was uh, one that uh, was sort of unexpectedly uh, drew a whole lot of uh, uh, attention and a lot of response from you guys out there. So I appreciate it, and I'm glad you like the show. And as a matter of fact, uh, I, I, I was going to mention this when I do uh, when I talk about some upcoming guests in just a few minutes. But uh, but Jay's partner and co-author of Monument to the End of Time, uh, his name is Vincent Bridges, and I know Vince as well. And uh, I, for whatever reason, I hadn't really thought uh, to get in touch with Vince to do a show. I had only contacted Jay, but after the response that I got from all of you, I decided that I would talk to Vince and see if he would do a show as well. So uh, Vincent Bridges will be on the show sometime in the next few weeks. I'll try to make it as soon as possible so that the, uh, the information that you heard from Jay Widener will still be sort of fresh in your minds as we talk to Vincent Bridges. But uh, regardless, whenever we have to do it or whenever we have the opportunity to do it, we will have Vincent Bridges on the show. And as I said, he was the co-author of Monument to the End of Time, Falconelli, Alchemy, and the Great Cross at Andai. So that's all coming up uh, in the next few weeks. All right, uh, email address here, orbitradio at AOL.com. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, ideas for shows, whatever, uh, feel free to contact me. I have no problem uh, reading 
the email, and I'll respond if I can. And I appreciate everything that you guys have to say, and I try to incorporate that stuff into the show and take it to heart. So please feel free to send me a note if you'd like at orbitradio at AOL.com. As I said earlier, the website, www.radioorbit.com, just one O in the middle there. And the phone number here in the studio is area code 573-874-5676, When we go to music or when we go to break, if you want to call me in the studio, you're welcome to do that. And I'm not sure if Michael wants to take any calls tonight. Uh, we'll have to we'll have to decide that as we get going. But we may we may take some calls toward the end of the show. And if we do, I'll give that number out when we get to that point. Okay. All right. We'll do space weather in uh, in a bit. But uh, let me talk real quick about a couple of the guests that are coming up over the next few weeks. As I said tonight, Michael Horn, uh, the North American representative and an expert for over 25 years on the Billy Meyer contact story. Next week. Nassim Haramain, as I told you a week ago, and if you weren't listening, uh, let me repeat here now, I had intended to do sort of a, a party here at the station on the 25th of July because it's the one-year anniversary of the program. We've been on the, on the air for one year now, believe it or not. It seems like it was just yesterday when I was sort of picking up the headphones and getting behind the microphone for the first time and shaking in my boots and all that, but uh, at any rate, one year has passed us by, and as we talk about a lot on this program, time really is moving faster and faster, and it's not uh, just an illusion or a perception. In my opinion, it actually is happening, and uh, at any rate, it's been a year, and so uh, we were going to do a party on the 25th to celebrate that, but uh, it was the only chance I had to interview Nassim Haramain, and I wanted to jump on that because I've been trying to get him on the air for quite a while and we've had uh, we've had scheduling problems and this was the only time I had a chance to get him on the air so I decided to jump on it and we're going to do that next week and the reason I was uh, uh, so excited to do that is because uh, Nassim has just announced the much anticipated publication of his and uh, Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher's paper The Origin of Spin a consideration of torque and Coriolis forces in Einstein's field equations and grand unification theory. And as I said last week, that sounds like a mouthful, uh, but the bottom line is it's a groundbreaking paper that proposes a solution to the long sought after uh, unified field theory. And uh, it may revolutionize our understanding of physics as we know it. And uh, it's going to be published in the peer-reviewed Noetic Journal, a very respected scientific journal. And uh, I'm very excited to have Nassim on the show next week to talk about all this stuff. So that's coming up next week. And as for the party, we're going to move it out just one week. It'll be August 1st, that first Monday in August. And if you're listening to the show, you're welcome to the party. That's the only rule. All you got to do is know about it. <laughs> so if you're uh, interested in coming down here and having sort of a fun night, we're probably not going to have a guest that night. I might get Kent Stedman on the air just for a few minutes just to say hi, because Kent was, of course, on the on the uh, inaugural program a year ago. And uh, him and I have been talking about it, and he's excited. He actually was talking about coming to town maybe. I'd love it if Kent could come to town and uh, meet some of you guys as well. And I'm actually very interested in... And, uh, 
uh, hoping to meet some of my listeners as well. So on August 1st, mark it on your calendars. Uh, we're going to have sort of a listener party down here at the station, 915 East Broadway, 11 p.m. Be there or be square. If you have any questions about it, just email me at orbitradio at AOL.com. All right? Okay, uh, let's see. What else? I told you about Vincent Bridges. Nick Cook and I are working on another show. I was thinking August 8th, but it might not be then. Regardless, uh, Nick will be on the show again very soon. John Lash, I've mentioned him over the last few weeks. Gnosticism, ancient mysteries, ancient alchemical texts, manuscripts, linguistics, Coptic, the Archons, shamanic traditions, all kinds of secrets uh, that John Lash has to share with us. And uh, two other ones that I want to mention really quickly... David Talbot and Wallace Thornhill, they'll probably be on the show together. They've written a wonderful book called The Thunderbolts of God. And they are propon uh, proponents of the so-called electric universe theory. They've sort of revivified and brought back to life the ideas of Emmanuel Velikovsky, one of my favorite authors and uh, scientists. And they have taken the the tool of modern science and applied it to Velikovsky's ideas and the results have been uh, astounding and so that is coming up not sure when I just got an email from them in the last couple of days that they'd like to do the show we just have to schedule it and the last thing I'll mention is Dr. Ralph Abraham if uh, if any of you were listening to the program um, well I guess it was back in April but I aired a piece called Metamorphosis, Trialogues at the Edge of the West, and it featured Terence McKenna, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, and Dr. Ralph Abraham. And Dr. Ralph Abraham is a chaos theorist, a doctor of mathematics at the University of Santa Cruz in California, has been for some 25 years. He has single-handedly uh, changed the field of mathematics over his career. And I'm very proud uh, to have him on the show. Again, I'm not sure exactly when, but Dr. Ralph Abraham will be on Radio Orbit sometime in the next couple months. I got an email from Ralph today. So, anyway, lots of good stuff coming, as always. Uh, so, tune in in the future, and we'll try to keep this show uh, moving forward and try to keep it something that's worth listening to. All right? Okay, let's um, take a quick break here. It's about 20 after the hour, 11.20 on... What is it? July 18th, Monday. And this is a piece of music from a new band that I just was introduced to over the last couple of days. They actually uh, sent me an email because they heard the Jay Widener show after I put it up on the web. And they were appreciative of the material and wanted to share some of their music with me. And it turns out they're wonderful musicians and writing some really cool stuff. And uh, this is a piece that they sent to me just today. And it's, you know... I'm not even sure what the name of it is. I think it's called Liquidelic Number 6, but I may be wrong. Regardless, wonderful stuff from an up-and-coming band that you're going to hear a lot more of on this program and elsewhere, most likely. They're called Montoine Bard. And uh, check it out right now. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. I'll be back in just a few minutes. <laughs> Yeah. 
That's right, yeah. All right, Mantuan Bard, my new friends from Olympia, Washington. Like I said, keep your ears open for them. I have a feeling you're going to hear more of that. Okay, uh, some of the funds for this program are provided by listener support and a donation from Mojo's. Information about Mojo's is available at www.mojoscolumbia.com or at 573-875-1588. And for those of you who don't know what Mojo's is, because there's not a whole lot of information there, it's a club over on like Park and 10th or something in downtown Columbia, and they play live music at least uh, five nights a week, something like that. Wonderful stuff. Always being brought to us by Richard King and the guys down there at the Blue Note and uh, Mojo's. Okay, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. Let's do space weather real fast here. Pretty interesting stuff going on, actually. Although the sun is sort of blank today if you went on the Soho satellites 
and uh, took a look at what's happening on the surface of the sun right now, you wouldn't see uh, anything too interesting. There's not a lot of sunspots on the front side of the of the sun right now. There is a big, large coronal hole that I'll talk about in just a minute, but a couple of days ago, that would not have been the case. There was an X-class flare on the 14th, on July 14th, and this is the largest class of solar flare that exists. Although it was low on the X scale, anytime we get in that range, it's a significant solar event. And as I always mention, uh, the the boys over at NASA tell us that we're in solar minimum right now. And as I've mentioned for the last five years, as we've been approaching the quote-unquote solar minimum, the activity on the sun has been absolutely uh, unprecedented. And it continues. It continues. So wild things going on on the sun right now. Uh, as I said, there's a coronal hole, a large one, right on the front side of the disk. Um, just because uh, you don't see a whole lot of sunspots on the front of it doesn't mean that there's no space weather. It doesn't mean that there's activity. Uh, the solar wind that comes out of that coronal hole is causing quite a bit of activity and some geomagnetic disturbances here on the planet. Uh, a coronal hole, by the way, is a region above the visible surface of the sun where the magnetic fields, uh, typically the magnetic fields of the sun, at least as far as we know, I like to qualify all this stuff because the sun is still quite a mystery to us as well. But what, what, what the people who study this say is that a coronal hole happens when an area of the surface of the sun is failed to be protected by the solar magnetic fields. They, they, the, the magnetic field of the sun fails to hold on, quote-unquote, to the sun's atmosphere. And when that happens, all kinds of hot gases flow out, of that hole into space and it becomes a stream of particles of matter literal matter literal matter from the sun uh, that then is spewn out and affects the entire solar system but certainly we are affected here on earth by it and it affects the magnetic fields here on our planet and our weather and volcanism and earthquake activity and all these things as I say over and over again the sun is the heart of our solar system. It is 99.9% of the mass and energy of everything in the system. All the planets, all the asteroids, all the moons, everything. The sun, 99.9%. Okay? So, when something happens on the sun, whether you perceive it or not, it is relevant and it affects everything in the system. So, that's always going on. And uh, this particular... Uh, solar wind that is probably going to start to interact heavily with the Earth's magnetic, magnetic field starting maybe tomorrow, maybe the 20th, maybe the 21st. It's difficult to tell sometimes because of the speeds and the measuring equipment, but uh, that's going to shake up our planet's magnetic field, and you'll probably see some interesting aurora activity over Canada and some of the northern uh, states in the United States here. So keep your eyes out if you're in the northern Latitudes. If you're in the northern hemisphere here, if you want to see some nice aurora borealis over the next few nights, it'll probably be on display thanks to Old Soul. Okay, um, the International Space Station is up there, as it always is, and I had a couple of questions on email of whether that is actually visible, and it is. 
depends if you're in the right place, but uh, there are actually a lot of people photograph it now and again, but to the unaided eye, the International Space uh, Station, it'll look like a bright star, but it'll be moving pretty quickly. It'll just look like a, like a, a bright point of light, uh, which is actually the, the solar arrays of the International Space Station, the way that it collects energy from the sun, uh, reflect light, and that's what we see when we're looking up in the sky in the evenings and we see it. Um, if you have a, a small telescope, it is quite spectacular, actually, and you can see it very clearly. Um, the shuttle Discovery, uh, which later this month, hopefully, uh, we'll be making a rendezvous with the ISIS, uh, will make it even a brighter uh, point in the sky. So uh, keep your eyes out on that. Uh, and if you want information on where to look, you can go over to, there to spaceweather.com. And lots of the information that I talk about during space weather comes from the guys over there. And you can find out more information about how to track the International Space Station above you and your city if you're listening right now. Okay. Speaking of uh, spaceships and crews in space, there is a pretty interesting story. Um, and I forget the guy's name. I actually should have written it down here, but I didn't, and, and it just uh, escapes me now. But there is a, a legal case that's going on right now, and it is being touted by the U.S. government as the largest or most important case of computer hacking that's, uh, that's happened since the dawn of the computer age and certainly since the Internet came into play. And he's a young man. I think he's only 17 years old right now, maybe 18 by now. At any rate, he last year broke into a number of computer systems of the U.S. government and he got into the NASA computers as well. And he's facing 70 years in jail. And that's what they're trying to um, prosecute him on. They're trying to put him away for a long, long time. My own personal opinion is he's just sort of a curious kid. And uh, he, the story goes that he got familiar with the movie War Games. If you remember that, it was an old movie back in the 80s, I want to say, and it starred Matthew Broderick, and I forget who else. But anyway, this, uh, this kid saw War Games and thought, wow, that looks like fun, and he started to mess with computers. And he became very adept at getting into places where people don't want you. And I'm going to read a little bit from an interview that was done just a couple of days ago with him. And again, if you want more information on this, I'll post this story up on my website after the show tonight, okay? All right, but just uh, listen to this, okay? There's a story that came out, and uh, it says, Hacker feels U.S. Navy has spaceships and crews in space. And again, this is just an excerpt from the longer story. He did a few trial runs hacking into Oxford University's network, for example, and he found the whole business incredibly exciting. Then it got more exciting when I started going to places where I really shouldn't be, he said. Like where, the interviewer asks. Like the U.S. Space Command, he says. What was the most, ex what was the most exciting thing you saw? Quote, I found a list of officers' names, he says, under the heading Non-Terrestrial Officers. 
I don't think it means little green men. What I think it means is not earth-based. I found a list of fleet-to-fleet transfers and a list of ship names. I looked them up. They were not U.S. Navy ships. What I saw made me believe that they have some kind of spaceships off-planet. The Americans have secret spaceships, I asked, or the interviewer asks. That's what the trickle of evidence has led me to believe. Now, I won't read any more of it. The interview is quite in-depth, and it goes uh, into lots of different things. But anyway, this is a scared kid, all right? He's a scared kid. And if you read the rest of the interview, you will see how scared he is because he talks about getting raped in prison and about how frightened he is about what's happening to him. And anybody who's interested in this stuff and who's researched this stuff knows that over many, many years, there's been lots and lots of intimation about this sort of thing going on. My own personal view is that we've probably had bases on the moon uh, at least for quite some time and there's a guy named Felix Bach who has uh, uh, evidence that quite thoroughly I've tried to get Felix on the show but he doesn't want to do a show and I'm not sure why but at any rate uh, this young man who's frightened to death and I don't blame him uh made that comment, and I'm going to read it again. He says, I found a list of officers' names under the heading non-terrestrial officers. <laughs> so take that as you will and uh, go check it out yourself and see if you can find any non-terrestrial officers of your own. Okay. Um, with regard to Jay Widener, I was mentioning the show uh, last week with Jay Widener and there's another story here that's uh, quite relevant to the stuff that Jay and I were talking about last week and it has to do with what's called a galactic super wind and I'm just going to read a bit of the story to you here this comes from physics.org by the way again a very well respected scientific uh, website and uh, peer reviewed organization Okay, a team of astronomers led by the University of Durham has discovered the aftermath of a spectacular explosion in a galaxy 11.5 billion light years away. Their observations reported today, that's July 14th, in the journal Nature, again a very well-respected scientific magazine, peer-reviewed, provide the most direct evidence yet of a galaxy being almost torn apart by explosions that produce a stream of high-speed material known as superwinds. The observations were made using the 4.2-meter Willem Herschel Telescope at La Palma, in which the U.K. is a major stakeholder. Though uh, through superwinds, galaxies are thought to blast a significant part of their gas into intergalactic space at speeds of up to several hundred miles per second. The driving force behind them is the explosion of many massive stars during an intense burst of star formation early in the galaxy's life, possibly assisted by energy from a supermassive black hole growing at its heart. Now, this is me adding my uh, commentary here, but the last half of that sentence shows you that they do not know. Okay, that's what it shows you. Anytime you see a scientific paper that says, possibly assisted by energy or anything like that, it means that they're not sure what's going on, okay? The discovery of the superwind was made by observing the gas in the halo of galaxy LAB2, which at over, over 300,000 light-years across is about three times larger than the Milky Way. 
Astronomers have long been puzzled about why key elements of the formation of planets and ultimately, ultimately life are so widely distributed throughout the universe. The superwind observed in the galaxy shows how such blast waves can travel through space, carrying elements formed deep within galaxies. And I was going to stop reading the article there, but luckily I read one more sentence uh, uh, before I copied and pasted it. Listen to this. To overcome this, the astronomers used an integral field spectrograph called Sauron. Sauron, for a large survey of nearby galaxies built at observatories at DeLion, collaboration of French, Dutch, and English astronomers, Sauron has provided us with the best evidence so far for an extensive outflow from a galaxy undergoing a huge starburst. These measurements are among the first steps toward understanding the physics of galaxy formation. And I'm going to repeat that again, all right? And this is another sentence that tells you that they don't know what's going on, okay? Astronomers have long been puzzled about why key... I take that back, I'm sorry. Sauron has provided us with the best evidence so far for an extensive outflow from a galaxy undergoing a huge starburst. These measurements are among the first steps towards understanding the physics of galaxy formation. In other words, they have no idea how galaxies are formed. Okay? So, if you remember what we were talking about with Jay Widener, his biggest concern was this galactic outburst coming from the core of our galaxy. Something which the Maya have intimated, something which Terence McKenna has come to the conclusion of, something which the Hopi Indians have come to the same conclusion, something that uh, is found in the pyramids at Giza, uh, something that is found on the monument in Andai, France. So this idea of galactic core explosions is not as far-fetched as it seems. And this may be what we have in store for us. And this may be uh, something that may be coming uh, sometime in the near future. It may not be. I don't know. But certainly there's lots and lots of historical literature that points to something like this. And what the results of that will be, who knows? Will it be a... Uh, a genetic mutation that brings enlightenment and peace for a thousand years? Or will it be the end? I don't know. Uh, maybe those things are the same thing. <laughs> I don't know that either. But anyway, I thought that I would mention that. It was sort of a synchronistic story that came out just a day after we did the interview with Jay Widener. And then I thought that I should take the time to read it to you all here tonight. Okay, um, I'm going to get Michael Horn on the phone here, so let's take a quick music break. And we'll be back in just a few minutes. In the meantime, this is Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds from the Liar of Orpheus. This is uh, Spell, wonderful new song from Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. This is Mike Hagen on Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Let down upon the drifting snow 
As I said, that was Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds from The Liar of Orpheus. That was called Spell, one of my favorite new CDs. All right, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. 
And uh, I just read that story about the super wind uh, that was related to the show that we did last week with Jay Widener talking about galactic core outbursts and this sort of thing. Uh, but I neglected to mention that this uh, uh, particular uh, piece of equipment that they use to monitor this stuff is called Sauron. I mentioned that, but Sauron, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Lord of the Rings series, was the name of the sort of overarching evil nemesis uh, throughout that entire J.R.R. Tolkien series. And I think it's pretty interesting that they chose the name Sauron uh, for that piece of equipment to study the galactic super winds that we just talked about. So, all right, I uh, just wanted to mention that before we get going here or continue things here. All right, um, I wanted to mention uh, one other thing here. I wasn't going to mention this until I saw the story today, but I thought it was worth talking about real fast. There's a guy whose name is Joe Viles, and he's a, a journalist who does work on the web, or did, and he died unexpectedly last night and suddenly in Perth, Australia. And Joe made a big contribution to online journalism, as controversial as he may have been, and uh, it's a great loss in my opinion. And Jeff Rents, who's a friend of mine, had a note put up on the web regarding the loss of Joe Viles. And I just want to read Jeff's comments real, uh, real fast because they, they reflect my, my feelings as well. And uh, this is just a note from Jeff. And it says, I received this news with great sadness. Joe's passing is a major loss to all who seek the bigger picture and who care about penetrating and breaking down the deadly walls of New World Order lies and deceit. Our ranks are thinner without him. Joe's views were intensely unique, provocative, and completely his own. They were always to be considered. Joe's commitment to reporting to the world through his unique mind and prodigious knowledge was fierce and unwavering. Even though we did not always agree, his articles and analyses were without question on the must-read list. His work was truly extraordinary, and he raised countless crucial issues and presented facts and controversy that are widely respected and posted all over the net. His site will remain a repository of extraordinary reporting and present a, a remarkable challenge for all of us who seek to stretch our worldviews and discern the truth. Joe's writing made all of us wiser and better citizens on this troubled planet. Thank you, Joe. And I echo those words of Jeff Rents. Thanks, Joe. And if you're interested in the information that Joe has provided in the past, you can check that out at www.joeviles.com. That's J-O-E-V-I-A-L-L-S.com. J-O-E-V-I-A-L-L-S.com. And uh, since I'm mentioning that, I will say something else really quickly here. You know, I don't do a whole lot of political stuff on this show, but lately I, I'm, I'm just compelled to say a couple of things. And with regard to the London bombings of uh, a couple of weeks ago, all I have to say is look deeper. Please look deeper. Okay? All right. Um, let's take a quick break here. We'll do one more piece of music, come back with one more follow-up story, and then we're going to talk to uh, Michael Horn. Michael Horn, as I said earlier, 
is the North American media representative for Billy Meyer. And all the information that we'll be talking about tonight, or at least a significant amount of it, can be viewed at www.theyfly.com. T-H-E-Y-F-L-Y.com. That's uh, Michael's site. And there's a tremendous amount of information there, along with some interesting imagery, all kinds of photos, historical photos, and predictions, prophecy, lots of different things uh, that we'll be talking about tonight. So if you want to follow along or uh, catch up uh, or actually uh, peek at that stuff beforehand, before we actually get Michael on the air, now's your chance. Get on your computers, jump on the web, and go over to theyfly.com. And you can always just go to my site. Uh, if, uh, if you've got that bookmark, just go to radioorbit.com, and you'll see Michael's links right on the front uh, on the front page there with me. Okay? All right, let's do one more quick break here. We'll be back in just about 10 minutes with Michael Horn. We'll be talking about the incredible story, uh, or maybe I should say remarkable. I'm trying not to use the word incredible anymore because I was pointed out, it was pointed out to me that it basically means not credible. <laughs> so I'm not using the word incredible if I can help it, although it's really difficult for me because I used to say that all the time. So anyway, we're going to use the word remarkable tonight uh, as much as we can, and we're going to talk about the remarkable story of Edward Albert Meyer, otherwise and better known as Billy Meyer. And it's going to be a great story and a great bunch of information that Michael has to share with us, and I look forward to, uh, to sharing it with you all. In the meantime, this is one last song for Joe Viles. It's uh, The Tragically Hip, and the song is called Leave.
Tragically Hip. That's from Inviolate Light. And it's called Leave. All right, one more quick story here. Although not directly related to uh, my guest that's coming up, it was one, again, that I saw today that I had to cover tonight uh, for people who are regular, regular listeners of this show. It has to do with uh, psilocybin mushrooms. It's not a happy story. It's from the BBC. How UK's love of mushrooms grew. The magic mushroom and magic mushroom users have long benefited from a loophole in the law that meant fresh varieties of the hallucinogenic fungus were legal despite dried ones being banned. But now the trip is over. They have a reputation as the ultimate hippy-dippy drug beloved of Hawkwind fans and psychonauts probing the doors of perception. Yet despite Magic Mushroom's associations with a more innocent bygone era, their popularity has soared in recent years. And I'll tell you why in a moment. The rise has gone hand-in-hand with growing availability, and that's not why. Instead of having to dodge cowpats to hunt native liberty caps in damp fields each autumn users in britain have had their pick of exotic species at head shops market stalls and internet retailers up and down the land magic mushrooms in their fresh raw state have not until now been illegal even though preparing them has been but a change in the law meant that sunday was the last day of legal trading prompting the last minute rush to buy them in places such as camden in london so psilocybin and psilocin uh, containing mushrooms have been uh, outlawed in the United Kingdom I'm surprised it didn't happen before now quite frankly uh, but here's a little bit about what they don't tell you all right and the main problem and this is me talking now this is just me talking off the, off the cuff a little bit but the main problem that political and religious and other ideologues have with the psychedelics is that they break down barriers and they break down boundaries that are implicitly required for those types of systems uh, to remain in power. Uh, this is why this is why the mushroom is such political dynamite. It makes it makes those who take it in sufficient amounts it makes them question. It makes them question everything. And it inevitably creates an attitude and understanding in the user that is diametrically opposed to industrial consumer capitalism or any other ism for that matter whether you're whether you're a chinese doctrinaire marxist or whether you're a western capitalist the mushroom removes the veil that's been hoisted over reality that makes and and that makes control freaks and and power mongers very very nervous because it shows them for the charlatans that they are all of them and uh... so this story is a sad one but it's not unexpectable and uh... regardless of their legal status it's my opinion that uh... people should take time and learn about these substances okay all right uh... that's that my guest tonight is michael horn he has a very interesting past. He's done many, many things. He has many accomplishments. Although tonight he'll be talking to us as the North American media representative for Edward Albert Meyer, better known as Billy Meyer. And if you're not familiar with the Billy Meyer story, this is the way to get familiar. Michael Horn has the goods, and uh, tonight he's going to share some of them with us. 
So without further ado, let's bring it up to speed right now and say hello to Michael Horn. Michael, thanks very much for being on Radio Orbit tonight. Appreciate you being here. Thank you very much, Mike. It is truly my pleasure to be here. Can you hear me okay through this headset? Yeah, I think we're sounding fine. Good. I think we're sounding fine. Signals look good. So, all right. Well, um, Michael, let's uh, let's start things off with maybe just a little bit of background. Uh, maybe a little bit of background on yourself, as much as you'd like to give. But then let's do a general background on the Billy Meyer story for the people who aren't familiar with the story, and uh, and then we'll we'll get a little bit deeper into uh, into what the story means. And and I want to say up front that the UFO. E.T. side of the story is certainly a significant side of the story, but it's certainly not the full story. And there's uh, a lot of uh, uh, there's a significant part of the story that goes way beyond things that fly in the sky. And we're going to concentrate on those as we get going. Um, but first, let's uh, let, let's just get the uh, the contact stuff out of the way and tell the people here. What really happened to Billy, and uh, and and when it happened, and and how things have progressed uh, up to now, and then we can talk more about prophecy and predictions and that sort of thing. Surely, uh, Billy Meyer, Edward Albert Meyer, is uh, currently a 68-year-old Swiss man, and his uh, we'll just say alleged once, and then let people decide for themselves whether it's true or not. But his contacts began when he was a five-year-old boy hmm. in 1942. And they also, again, we've said allegedly once, so we'll, I won't really won't do it again. They continue to this day, and they are with a race of human beings uh, who have uh, contacted him and worked with him since he was a child for specific purposes that are related to not only our past and our present, but our future. And he has had the most remarkable and dramatic experiences of probably any man that's ever ever lived. Um, his physical evidence in the case is without equal. Uh, over 1,200 clear daytime photos were taken by him of these craft, uh, up to four of them in a frame. Uh, I'm not talking about lights in the sky. I'm talking about clearly flying machines. He took eight film segments. He took a stunning video. He recorded the sounds of the ship on the, uh, numerous occasions, I think four. He was also given metal alloy samples that were representative of different stages of the uh, metallurgy process by which these people claim they manufacture their craft. And these were turned over to a scientist at IBM named Marcel Vogel. All uh, samples of all of these different uh, areas of evidence were examined, and they were deemed to be authentic, not hoaxed, and they remain irreproducible. Uh, the scientist Marcel Vogel outright said that with any technology available to him, he could not begin to duplicate the metals that he had in front of him. Okay, now when, uh, it went on from there. When were, when were those... I'm, I'm sorry to jump in, but when were... Give me, give me a time frame. When, when was the, those original photos and video and the stuff you're talking about, when, when did that stuff uh, sure. uh, occur? Um, well, Meyer's first photos, he took them in 1964 <laughs> in India. And a story was written about him in a newspaper there called the New Delhi Statesman. I think I have all this stuff. If people hunt around, there's tons of free stuff on my site. And you can, you can track some of this and find it. Um, Billy took his whole series of photos at that time. Not only did he photograph the craft, 
that he visited with uh, one of his ET contactors in India, where he was staying at an ashram where he was studying Buddhism at the time. He was actually ended up studying all of the world's major religions as part of his own training. Mm -hmm. And there was a woman who came down from one of the ships and uh, met with Billy and walked around with him. And interestingly enough, about five years ago, a uh, woman came forward who was a retired UN diplomat from Cambodia. She had been receiving messages from people, email and what have you, because of her connection to the very ashram where Billy had been staying, as his story starts to spread more and more around the world. Okay. She came forward and you know, gave quite an interview where basically what she said was she, her sister, her grandfather, who was the head of the ashram, and all the people at the facility not only knew and had met Billy Meyer, they saw the ships and they saw Meyer walking with his woman and that the man was truthful. Uh, she herself had a visit from this woman in, in her own room and she would fall asleep at night as a little girl. And thank you very much. Um, that's, you know, p part of it. There's well over 120 witnesses to the case, five of the photographers as well. So we, we have here also a new category of physical evidence that uh, people can find on the site. And those are stunningly unusual uh, finger, hand, and arm prints that are virtually etched into the paint finish of the hood of a car at the center there in Switzerland, which have remained visible and clear as, you know, clear as day for over a year through the Swiss summer and winter and through the summer again here. And I saw them, and we had a, a TV crew that's doing a special for Discovery Channel, and they came and they filmed them, and we're certainly open to having scientists come and examine them. Sure. You, you can see the papillary lines in the, in the fingerprints. And the, mm. Oh, yeah, six fingers and a thumb in each of the hands. Hmm. Wow. It's now, just the physical evidence stuff. And again, we consider it the least important. Right. Now, and, and again, with regard to, uh, to ph photography and video and these sorts of things, this is long before the age of Photoshop, long before the age of uh, the proliferation of computers and this sort of thing. So, uh, the, let's talk a little bit about the difficulty of uh, of doing something like that in 1964 or 1975 or whatever. All of these original yep. photographs over that first 10 or 12 year period. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Well, you 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 hit the nail on the head here because um, first of all, in case anybody who's listening has not yet looked and seen Myers, it's a one armed man. It uh, adds another little dimension here of, of difficulty. He hmm. lost his left arm in 1965. Uh, he took a you know, bunch of photographs uh, up until 1964. And then in 1975, when he began what were called the, uh, you know, referred to as the official contacts, the quantity, quality, and variety of physical evidence increased to all the six uh, categories I've mentioned. And during the course of an investigation where the lead investigator is the Lieutenant Colonel Wendell Stevens, U.S. Air Force retired, and Lee and Britt Elders, two top-level private investigators and security experts, their six-year-long investigation could, could reveal, could find no collaborators, no conspirators, no financial trail, no technology anywhere near capable of making any of the physical evidence. Very interesting. All right, hey, look, uh, before we continue, I'm going to give out the website uh, address real fast again. I just want to do a, a, a quick uh, uh, station ID here. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM, and my guest tonight is Michael Horn, and we're going to be discussing the Billy Meyer contacts 
and uh, extraterrestrial uh, contact information that has been ongoing now for some 50 plus years. Um, the website for my guest, Michael Horn, is www.theyfly.com. Theyfly, T H E Y F L Y.com. You can get there directly or you can get there through my site at radioorbit.com. And as Michael mentioned just a few minutes ago, there's a tremendous amount of information there, and most of it is uh, available. Uh, for free. You can just go peruse it and check it out and download it and uh, make what you will of it. But it, uh, the further we get into it, it does become uh, an inexplicable story. And so, uh, Mike, as, Michael, as I said earlier, it's, uh, before I brought you on the air, I, I, I talk about a lot of strange things on this show, but I have sort of stayed away from the ET UFO topic uh, not, not not fully. I talk about it once in a while, but I don't do it very often, only because the the waters are so muddied now after all these mm. years. But this is one that uh, that we can go back and go back and go back to where the waters were much clearer, and that's why I uh, that was the main reasons why, why why I decided that, that that we should talk about this with you, and and you were the guy to do it because. Uh, You've been you've been studying this particular story for nearly 30 years now, I think. Yeah, 26 plus years. Wow. Okay, so um, uh, let me mention the book real fast too. Should I mention uh, here Guido Moosburger's book? I think it's called mm -hmm. "And Yet They Fly." And again, much of this information is included in this book, uh, "And Yet They Fly," which was released, I think, in September of 2001. Uh, yeah, you know, there's a new version. Okay. It's called and, and Still They Fly, and that came out last year, and we have that and, and the DVD and everything. Okay. Well, let me ask you one more question with regard to this historical stuff. There is, I believe, in, in, uh, in Mr. Mooseberger's book, they talk about uh, assassination attempts as well on, on, yes. on, on Mr. Meyer. Is that something that, that, that you found to be uh, valid as well? Yes. Uh, 21 now documented attempts. I've talked to witnesses to about 12 of them. Uh, quite serious, quite real. Uh, there are even some photographs in the book showing, you know, a bullet and, and a hole in the jacket where he, and he placed a, some protection. It, it's, it's a very bizarre thing. There have been people with rifles and handguns and, and knives and hatchets and you name it. And the lead investigator was sitting with Meyer uh, early on in about, I think, 78. They're sitting outside interviewing and suddenly Meyer literally fell forward into his lap out of nowhere. And they heard a crackling sound at the same time, and they didn't know what had happened. Meyer didn't even know why he fell from a sitting position. They got up, and where Meyer's head had been was a .22 dum-dum bullet stuck in the, in the wall. And so that was a, a time when Meyer was receiving protection, apparently from his contactors, and they somehow moved him out of the way when the, uh, when the bullet came in. Lieutenant Colonel Stevens was there, and he says, "You know, I was there. There was no, there was no hole in that wall before uh, Billy fell forward, and there was a bullet in it when we got up, and uh, other people heard the shot, et cetera, et cetera." So the man has been a target of 21 attempts in his life, and the truth of the matter is, it's not simply because of the UFOs or the ETs, but it's it's the deeper content of the case and okay. the enormous controversy that this will bring to our world regarding our religions, our political systems, uh, economic systems, you name it. And there are powers that be that apparently 
would prefer that he wasn't around to you know tell his story. Wow. All right. Now, okay. So over all these years, there has to have been a tremendous amount of effort to debunk all of all of this as well. Yes. Yeah. Sure. And there still is. I mean, the the effort um, to debunk Billy is. Oh, gosh, it's gone on literally for decades. And in, in 2001, after reading stuff from people, it was just really outrageous, I finally decided to do something about it. So I made an appointment to go over and visit with a, a group, the TOPS, actually, International Professional Skeptics Group. They're known as CFI, Center for Inquiry West, in Los Angeles. Right, right out of they're California. Yeah. yeah. And they're associated with James Randi, also known as the Amazing Randi, mm -hmm. the magician skeptic. And I went in and I showed them Myers films and photos, and I've, I've actually put some of these on the DVD so people can see for themselves and you know just have the experience, so to speak. Um, and I said, okay, what do you think? And they said, oh, this is an easily duplicated hoax. Mm -hmm. So I turned to the guy and I said, okay, fine. How about you duplicate one of Myers' 1,200 photos and one of his eight film segments? He said, oh, sure, we can do that. I said, great. I stayed in touch with this fellow, Vaughn Reese. Over the period of the next few months, I called him several times, dropped in on him once or twice more, and nothing was forthcoming. And basically, they kind of just faded away until March of last year when they finally posted six little photos of a model that they'd somehow suspended, and they took these photographs. It was kind of cute. So I was being interviewed on this Art Bell show, mm -hmm. uh, Coast to Coast, last mm -hmm. year. Right. And... The and I was doing a shellacking job on the skeptics, and the guy called in and was protesting, and he, he said, well, we've duplicated the effect of Myers' photos. And I said, well, number one, anybody can duplicate the effect. And go around a sci-fi video, and you'll see something flying around. But I said, you know, that there are, uh, as I pointed out to you numerous times, there are test parameters that Myers' photos and films were subjected to, and they're rather stringent and specific. And so then Art Bell said, yeah, will you submit your photos for the same test? Mm -hmm. And the skeptic said, no. Hmm. And that literally ended it. Wow. <laughs> he was off the air. Yeah. And then uh, James Randi retracted his claim about a month later that the case was a hoax. And they've gone nuts trying to you know, regain some ground on this, but they can't because they, they never did submit the film segment they thought they could make. Uh, I was told, I, I put the, this one film segment on the DVD that is really stunning where Myers zooms in broad daylight right onto the object. You can see two lights in broad daylight alternating off and on from, from the ship. And, I mean, you're talking about a, a huge metallic object with lights, broad daylight. And this guy had said to me, the skeptic had said, well, Myers just scratched the negative of, the, of this film model with a pin. So last year I went over with a producer, a Hollywood producer who did the movie Solaris, and we went to a couple of guys who own a company that won the Academy Award for Special Effects for Independence Day. I showed them Myers photos, and I showed them the films, and I brought this one film up, and I said, so tell me, is that a model that the guy scratched the negative with a pen? They both literally laughed out loud, and they said, first of all, that's not a model. We know models. And second of all, we know the technique of scratching the negative, and that ain't it. So I said, okay, can you du duplicate this man's films? And they said, well, if we could duplicate him, we would have to go to CGI, you know, the computer-generated right. image. Right. And I said, well, that's pretty interesting because, you know, uh, in my opinion, Myers' films are so stunning that 
nothing up to and including the time that he was filming these in the mid to late 70s, nothing commercially made about spaceships or what have you even comes close. And both of the guys said, you know, you get no argument from us. This stuff is amazing. So uh, those were two, two more current experts. A, um, a no longer with us is a fellow named Wally Gentleman, who was a special effects expert from the Canadian Film Board, who did the special effects for Kubrick's 2001. And he said, you know, this is actually a document on my site where I list comments from different scientists and experts who looked at Meyer's evidence and, and who really basically said, you know, this is this is not to be laughed at. This is not hoaxed. And of course, it get, people want to ignore that, and, and mainstream scientists now uh, won't talk about it, and skeptics will still, still take shots at it. I was just on a blog board earlier this evening, shellacking a guy who was saying, oh, the Meyer case is a hoax, and I Okay, you know, here's the scientific quotes. Prove it. You know, right. argue with these guys. Right, right. I had a physicist stand up. I mean, it, it goes on and on. There are people that are solidly behind the case because they know it's real. But a lot of them also are not willing to step forward as credible scientists and, and venture into the fray unnecessarily. Right, right, right. There's no, no, no payoff for them. Except for that one. Yeah, yeah, and we see that in uh, not not only in in cases such as the Billy Meyer case, but we certainly see that in in many different controversial cases where we have. Uh, I, I I've talked to many scientists who have uh, credible and legitimate evidence about uh, lots of different kinds of phenomenon, but certainly there is a tremendous amount of pressure against uh, them that makes it very difficult for them, at least they seem to think so, to come out and, uh, and, and go on the record with this, this sort of stuff. And, of course, there's things like grants and tenure and peer review and all these things that, uh, uh, that, that they have to deal with as well. So I'm not, uh, yep. I'm not you know, I, I understand where they're coming from, but, but, uh, but yeah, we see that uh, quite, quite frequently. And, and let's, uh, let, let's clarify again the... These particular videos or, or pictures that we're talking about right now, those were created in the 70s, is that correct? Uh, yes, 1975 to about 1978 or 9 with, I think, the video. We have on the DVD, we've got a stunning video. We're in broad daylight outside. Uh, Meyer is in an open field about oh, 300 to 500 feet away is a tree. And in front of a tree is this big silver ship just hovering. And then Meyer zooms across the field. He had a video camera for this. And you can see that this is one three-dimensional object, uh, clear as day. It's, it's, it's no uh, prop by any stretch of the imagination. And it is uh, it's an amazing thing. Amazing. All yeah. right. Well, let's... Let me ask you a question. How did you get interested in this, and how did you uh, how did you get involved to begin with? In other words, you've been, as you said, you've been studying this and researching it, and in fact, you've met Billy and spent time with him, and you've been doing it for twenty five plus years. What, uh, what 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 kick started you to get involved with it, with this to begin with? Well, ever since I was a kid, I had a lot of dreams of you know round lighted objects flying in the sky and and stuff that just kind of gave me the chills. There was something about this. And, and I was a kid back in uh, the early 50s, late 40s. Even. And this was something I, I had dreams of different objects and even people and things. And in 1979, I walked into a bookstore in, in L.A., and I saw this coffee table-sized photo book. 
was the clearest photos of uh, UFOs that ever, ever seen. And uh, I just picked that book up and bought it, brought it home and looked at it, and I was just, just mesmerized. About seven years later, I was in a little cafe in Sedona, Arizona, hmm. with uh, my daughter and a girlfriend, and we were in there, and there was only one other guy in the South Food restaurant. We were waiting our interminable wait for the uh, famous avocado and sprout sandwich that always takes forever. Uh, we got to talking with this, you know, with this fellow, and he was a retired IRS agent. And one thing led to another, to UFOs, to the Meyer case, and he said, well, have you read the contact reports? And I said, what's that? And he said, well, that's about 2,000 pages right, worth right, of the right. conversations. Right. And I said, no, and he said, come back to L.A., come up to my place, and you can have them, and indeed... Uh, I took possession of them about three weeks later, and that got me so far into this case, I've never come out. Wow. All right, well, that explains a few things there. So, Okay, so we've got this, we've got, let, let, I tell you what, before we go further, let's talk about Billy Meyer himself and about uh, his situation at the time, what, uh, where he lived, what his... Uh, sort of social situation was was he a prankster a hoaxer or was he uh, you know what what was his life uh, story at the at the time you mean in the 70s yeah. or I'm sorry miss, yeah, 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 as, as the story began and as it progressed what what's Billy Meyer about what did he do uh, what sure well you know Billy as a kid here's a here's a kid at five years of age having face-to-face onboard meetings with extraterrestrial humans you know, again, if this story is true, this is this isn't an abduction story. This is something of a whole other magnitude. Right, it's some sort of a cooperative story or something. It seems. Oh like. yes, definitely. And as, as as one gets involved in studying the story, uh, the information in it will reveal how this connection came about, and quite frankly, how ancient it is, and you know what this this is really about, quote unquote. Well. Meyer had a lot of difficulties uh, as he was growing up. Uh, while this was going on, he basically kept the experiences to himself, finally was able to confide in his parish priest before he could even talk to his own mother about it. And the parish priest had been contacted by these people and prepared uh, for Meyer's ultimately coming to him uh, you know, for, for counseling and advice. And he was able to counsel you know, Meyer, young, young Edward, he was not called Billy, uh, to, you know, to go ahead and have these experiences. This was something that was positive for him and would do him no harm and would be very important. And uh, Meyer had his problems. He ended up in, I think, in, in truancy school, and he became withdrawn and sullen, and kids beat him up. He had a really rough early period of time. He even joined the French Foreign Legion when he was about 15 or so and ran away. And from that, I walked across the desert out of Africa or something. It just <laughs> a, a life that you cannot imagine. He... He traveled in the 60s. He traveled around Africa, Asia, India, and the Mideast. He was meeting people like King Hussein of Jordan and King Farouk and Indira Gandhi and Saddam Hussein. I mean, he was meeting people who were or were going to become major players on the world stage. And this was also at the urging of his uh, extraterrestrial friends mm-hmm. because of what they knew about coming times on Earth and uh, some of the dynamics of what would unfold based on their own abilities to know these things, which is yet another part of the story. So he was rubbing shoulders with all sorts of people. There's photographs of him in a group of Jordanian desert fighters. It's kind of like 
Zelig, you know, the Woody Allen? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You look yeah. and he's over here. You look, he's over there. Here's a photo of Myron Paris. Here's one in Morocco. Here's one in Jordan. Here's one with King Hussein. He is kind of Indiana Jones and Zelig meet uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, it, it's it's a remarkable thing, and because it's, it's, it has its roots so far back, and he's been consistent in just telling his story, and I'll, I'll give you an example in, in a moment of my own experience with him on it, there's a plain and simple honesty about him and about the story, and it unfolds just with the most amazing information. It's stunning. It, you really shake your head. One of the things that happened, and this will you know, sound a little far-fetched, but I... I kind of tried to play a trick on Billy last time I saw him in May, because I was there last year. May of this year, and or May, yes, of May of this year. May of this year, and okay. I've been there May of last year as well, 2004. Okay. And when I was there in 2004, uh, I was talking to Billy in his office, and he had a little computer there. Which he finally got a computer in, two, in I think, in 2000. Otherwise, he was on an electronic typewriter for all those years. So we we're at his computer there, and, and uh, he was talking about some things that he would type up and prepare for these play iron and they would literally come to his office pick up the printed papers and take them with them and he, he said to me and it was uh, this is uh, I'll be mentioning one of the names of these ETs he says to me next week Zafanat Paneak comes to fix my computer I said well what's he going to do he said he's going to make it possible for me to write what I write for the play iron people to go directly into a separate little server that beams the information into a telemeter disk that they have in our atmosphere and then from there it gets beamed back to their world so they don't have to come here every time to pick it up from me. And I said, okay, you know, that's pretty... And here's a you know, little guy with gray hair and beard and blue jeans and sitting in his office. He's telling me that an ET will come next week to fix his computer. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, that, that sounds like the best Wi-Fi I've ever heard of. I think. Oh my, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it, I got to tell you things because it, it is, it is the humanity of the situation is so touching to me. So I'm with him in May this year, and I think, okay, year has passed since I sat and talked to Billy, and I've got a pretty good memory. I'm going to see if I can trip him up. Right. Maybe he's lying. Yeah. I always reserve the right to question the guy. Sure, sure. But I said, you know, you got to. I said, see, Billy. Um, Last time I was here, I think you mentioned Zafanapanak was going to fix your computer. And that's all I said to him. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. He came. He said, because, you know, I write these papers for the play iron people, and you see my printer over there. Well, they always have to come and pick it up. So he came and he fixed it so that I could type it, and it goes into a separate server, and it beams it to this little disk they have up there that beams it back to their world. And he said, and then he stopped. He said to me, he did that, but, you know, he screwed something up in my computer, something else. He has to come back and fix it. And I thought, okay, a year has passed. This guy is inundated all the time with the people that live and work with him, with people that come from around the world. I had a conversation with him. I talked about many things, and I bring that one thing up, and the story's exactly the same with a couple of, you know, updated details. When you lie, you don't do that. You have to remember, oh, what did I tell the guy the last time? I mean... He just kicks it right out. And the way he speaks about some of these things is remarkably matter-of-fact because they are 63 years of his life. Right, right. So we're sitting in the office this time and talking about something to do with these people. And he says, oh, yes, uh, I know. I said to him that it seemed to me that no matter how advanced the race would be, ultimately it's got to live somewhere uh, on its own worlds or in their ships, and they have to make their you know, clothes. They have, to, they have to live life like, you know, like we do, but probably a lot uh, you know, more technologically advanced. And he said, well, it's true. 
He says, of course, even with those people, they have their shoemakers and their, you know, people that do their production of their food. He said, for instance, about a week ago, uh, this man, Pachab, brought a woman who came who wanted to meet me from their world. And she's just a gardener, a simple gardener. She's 400 years old. And she's a simple gardener with a lot of knowledge, he said. <laughs> and he said, I mean, the way he talks, it's just so, it's so innocent because this is what he is reading. He says, you know, her husband's a gardener too, but he does the work with the technology for the exporting of their foods and everything. And she is more of a, just a simple gardener. Very and, and yeah, I lose a lot of knowledge, and she's lived for 100 years. Okay, what do you do with stuff like that? If everything else in this case didn't add up, you, you have to think, well, this guy's just making it up yarns. Hmm. But there are, you know, we went out to the car, and here's four sets of handprints with seven fingers each, perfectly etched into the painted finish of the Subaru or whatever. You see all the fine little papillary lines and the fingerprints and the palms and and this is what, you know, to them, this isn't a big deal. This is, oh, yeah, this happened, and, you know, we're still busy with our garden, and we're still busy trying to... <laughs> well, you know, the two things come to mind uh, of, of what we've mentioned uh, uh, so far. And the first one, you, you mentioned that the, fir that the earliest contact was around the age of five years old. Yeah. And to me, that actually strikes a chord with me because I think about the imagination of children. And I think that right. in, in, a, in a legitimate uh, situation such as that, the time to make such a contact is with a child or is when the person is in a, in, in a state of mind or a state of mental development where he has yet to be uh, conditioned and indoctrinated and, uh, and brought up yeah. into this reductionist Cartesian society of ours where, where all of this stuff is nonsense. So, yeah. Well, you know, uh, interestingly enough, it was only about a week before his first contact that he and his father were outside, and they saw a huge silver disc fly by, and he said to his father, what's that? And his father said, gee, I don't know, maybe that's one of those weapons that Hitler's developed, you know, for mm -hmm. the war. Mm -hmm. And so his father had actually seen the first sighting with him. So there was another, you know, a witness to the strange object. And then the parish priest of whom there are many photographs in, in one of the books that we have. It's only in German. That's why I don't have it on my website. Mm -hmm. But he, uh, he, he counseled Billy for, you know, a time all through these contexts, too. So it's quite a, you know, mind-blowing thing, a young five-year-old boy who, as you say, is, you know, his mind hasn't been, you know, trashed at that point yet. It's, in his case, it's been opened beyond, beyond compare. Right, right. Now, the other thing, and, and we're about to go to break here. We're at, at the bottom of the hour, but let me mention one other thing and then ask you a question before we go to break, and then we'll come back and talk about that question. But uh, the, the other thing that I think that's important that you make clear is that this is 3D reality. In other words, this is not spirits or interdimensional things. In other words, these are... Uh, and and also you mentioned earlier that these are humans that these are Absolutely. that these are human beings or or, or I, I'm guessing that that's that, that you meant what you said that they're human exactly all right um, exactly. they're actually yep there's some drawings of them on the site if you you know click on the links to the book you'll get to a thing where you can see page twelve and pictures of them right okay well when we come back I want to ask you a little about a uh, little bit about where they come from. And uh, right. we haven't really talked about uh, about who they are and what and what they're about. Let's do that. We'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about that and um, and continue here. Okay? Sure. All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to it right here. Um, my guest tonight is Michael Horn, and we're talking about 
the Billy Murray, the Billy Meyer contactee story, uh, one of the most remarkable stories uh, in the history of the UFO ET uh, historical genre, and we'll be back in just a few minutes with uh, with Mr. Horn, and we'll talk more about uh, Billy and his story and these interesting humans that he somehow has been in contact with for many many years. Okay, so stick around. We'll be back again uh, in just a few minutes. In the meantime, this is Soul Coughing with Unmarked Helicopters, and this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia.
standing on the outside. Yeah, funny how you see the truth. All right, this is Mike Hayden. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. My guest tonight is Michael Horn. He's a researcher into the, well, it's actually a number of things, but tonight we're talking about the history and the ongoing story of the Billy Meyer contactee extraterrestrial story that's been ongoing now for some 60 years. And uh, Michael's going to join us again right now, Michael, and I'm glad uh, you're sticking around. We had a little bit of trouble with the phones, though, but we're back in business here. So let's, uh, let's get right back to it and talk about uh, these, uh, these human beings that Billy Meyer met many, many years ago. And who are they? And, and, and where do they come from? And why, I guess, uh, uh, why are they interested in us? And why are they here? And why are they giving us all this information and why have they stayed involved uh, for so many years with 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 so such small result and with such little success yeah uh, good questions all well uh, let's try and start uh, back somewhere around the beginning of the questions they are uh, a human race who claim to be ancestrally connected to us uh, in, in in some ways and uh, even perhaps more, or at least as important, connected to uh, their own ancestors who were, they say, in many cases, along with others, the very gods of our antiquity that uh, we know from our various holy books and what have you. They have uh, expressed that, uh, in, in their opinion, their own forefathers did enormous damage to us, to the... You know, human race that was developing on this planet. And what we should say is, in their histories and in their uh, information that they've given Meyer in abundance, the the true history of humanity on this planet, according to them, goes back literally millions of years mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and includes the comings and goings of other extraterrestrial races as well, some who came here accidentally, some who came here deliberately, uh, some who were stranded here when their technology failed, various, all sorts of you know, things that have transpired over many millions of years. I have a free document on the site called Contact 251. Uh, I think it's a three-parter, and Meyer uh, goes way back in history and tells much of this and also makes you know, prophecies and predictions for the future, a number of which, of course, have already come true since it was published. The mission uh, that could be you know seen as not working not successful whatever you want to to call it uh, in truth i guess we could say there has been success to it there has been failure to it um it, it's it's difficult because uh the overall goal is not so much to convince us about uh, what would you call it um, extraterrestrials per se as it is to help us with our own future survival, to assure that. Okay. The process involves uh, the almost oblique, obscure, uh, whatever you want to refer to it as, uh, evidence and uh, appearance of extraterrestrial humans who will not make their presence you know, directly known, certainly not to everybody, uh, because they know that uh, the interference that that is, which had been done also in the past by their distant forefathers and others, led us astray. We are not ready. Mm. We would turn over our power far too easily to 
you know, other beings. Now, it's a long-winded answer, but I, I wanted to catch some of the... Uh, Question. Right. Well, well, uh, with with what you said just there, it sort of rings to me of the Sitchin material, the Zechariah Sitchin material. In other mm-hmm. words, this this idea that regardless of who they are, uh, that there is a long, long history that goes back much, much further than we might assume, and that uh, and and what what makes me say that is the fact that you said that they may have uh, done us a disservice uh, at some time in the past, and that certainly reminds yeah. me of the Sitchin material. So that that, that there, there's. Uh, there's there's some uh, uh, evidence in the literature uh, from other sources that that that, that may be uh, may be a valid uh, a valid statement. Right, according uh, to the the Meyer material, the Sitchin material has things in it that are accurate, but that there's also inaccuracies and time frames that are wrong and other things. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that you know, just an opinion. It's not that important. The, right, the right, thing right. about you know Sitchin. It has done remarkable work and I think clearly shows extraterrestrial history here. Uh, for anybody that has eyes to see, you know, there's statues and carvings and all sorts of evidence. So the difference is, of course, that Myers is an ongoing uh, contemporary case with the most amazing uh, evidence, the most amazing information. Mm-hmm. It's it's in a league clearly all of its own. Right, and that makes sense as well. In other words, if you have direct contact and you're getting direct information, in other words, you can look back, you know, any anybody like Sitchin or anybody else, anybody who's trying, trying to do work in the deep past uh, is bound uh, to not be fully correct. In other words, be, there, there, there has to be uh, some speculation and they're going to miss the mark uh, sure. and, and, and this sounds like a case where where a guy who actually does have the info says well you know he was close and not you know he has, yeah. some, ha- has some some legitimate stuff there unfortunately he missed it here and here and here because of this and this but he can actually look at that and say well this is why or whatever right and if he doesn't himself know he as it, uh, Billy often does he asks the people to play our own people that he meets with many questions about many things and they give him answers uh, sometimes they don't give him answers if it's not appropriate to answer okay. or they'll give him a partial answer but in innumerable cases they give him enormously detailed information amazing all right so yeah. you mentioned you've mentioned a few times this word playaren i think is the way you pronounce it playaren playaren okay J- yeah it's pronounced like a y okay playaren what uh, wh- what does that word mean and what does it what does it signify well it, it in your original lengthy question there, you wanted to know about where they come from and all of that. And uh, it commonly has been accepted in, in the sort of new agey contemporary uh, you know, space, spaced out uh, information that there are Pleiadians. And there are people that have written books about Pleiadians and claim to channel Pleiadians, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. people from the Pleiades. Right, right, right. All of that came about after Meyer started to publish his contact reports in 1975 and what happened was even prior to that time Meyer in his meetings with these people was told when it comes time that we want you to start to publish you know, public uh, awareness coming to this case uh, we want you to refer to us as Pleiadians even though that's not really what we're called and he said well why and they said well look people are familiar with the star cluster of the Pleiades and our own worlds lie in an altered time-space continuum in the direction of the Pleiades, but about 80 light-years beyond it, 500 mm-hmm. light-years from Earth. Okay. And w- what they said was, 
when you do, uh, you begin to publish the information and your and your photos and the conversations, people are going to not only accuse you of being a liar, other people will start to claim that they're meeting with us. And since we know, and you know even at this stage, that there are no Pleiadians, these people will self-identify as liars and charlatans and frauds and fakers. And it wasn't until about 1995 that when they were about to leave the planet officially, uh, take their, you know, close up their bases that they had the three bases here, that they said to them, and now you, you should refer to us as we are called, as, you know, Playaren, play uh, which refers to, you know, our constellation, the, the Playaris, which translates to Pleiades. Okay. But we, we don't call ourselves Pleiadian people. Right, we are right. people. So that lengthy bit of, uh, you know, obscure information is, well, well, it's it's relevant because what it, again it shows yeah. that that it was a way it was a way to to separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Exactly. And uh, so, uh, it, it, talk about tricks. You talked about playing a little trick on Billy. Well, it looks like they played their own little trick just to clarify who was uh, legitimate and who wasn't. That's correct. It's absolutely correct. And what I, you know, my own take on this, if these people are real and they are, you know, working to try to affect us in some positive ways, they must be, and I sure hope they are, farther down the block, smarter than we are. Hmm. Which means that, you know, they have to take into account an enormous complexity of uh, factors, uh, various intelligence and beliefs and everything else, and yet they still have made mistakes, which they haven't hidden. And Myers made mistakes too, which he hasn't hidden. So it's a very human thing where they own up to their errors and they move on. Well, and, and, and again, for me, uh, that legitimizes it more than more than not. In other words, I don't believe in a perfect universe, and I don't believe in a perfect being. And I think that well, maybe there's. I suppose uh, it's not the time to get into that, but uh, bottom line is that, that that most of the creatures out there are probably quite capable of making mistakes, regardless of how far advanced they are along mental lines or technological lines or what have you. Yeah, in their in their own words, every creature, every evolving let's just use the word human for now because they claim that there's nearly 41 million human races in this universe. Oh, yes. Every human. Yeah, it's a huge number. Every human being makes mistakes as part of their growth and evolution, and there's nothing wrong with it. The only problem comes when we lie and deny our mistakes, and then we complicate our situation. We make it difficult because we don't change the facts. We delay the outcome of it which only then gets compounded and made worse. Oh, boy, and are we in the middle of that sort of situation right now? So, Up to our ears. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And they foretold... Well, you'll see when we get into that. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, well, uh, let me let me add something really quickly for the listeners out there. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, um, the website again for Michael Horn is www.theyfly.com. Theyfly.com. There's a tremendous amount of information there. Most of it is free. There's also uh, a DVD I think that you guys have produced recently uh, that's available, and uh, the book by. Uh, Mr. Mooseburger, which, uh, again, was published, I think, in 2001, but there's a tremendous amount of this information in there as well. And uh, also, you mentioned the 251st uh, contact, and I think yeah, that... Yeah, that's free. Go, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's freely available on the site. 
and and Guido Musburger's book is the we have the 2004 edition and something just occurred to me I'll, uh, maybe I'll be able to mention a couple times sure if anybody gets the DVD and orders the DVD that listens to your show we'll send them a a, a CD a fifteen dollar CD for free just so they can have you know get the DVD get them motivated to do it and share it with their friends and start to find out what's going on. All right, great. So it's free. In other words, free gift. There's my big promotion. Right. No, that's great. And uh, so you heard it out there. If you guys are interested in this stuff, make sure you go to the website, either directly uh, to Michael's site at theyfly.com or through radioorbit.com. Um, the the I guess the question that I have about the uh, the Pleiarans is they also mentioned that 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 there are there have been other uh, extraterrestrial races or intelligences that have also visited the planet or interacted with humans or at least uh, humans on planet Earth uh, historically as well. Did, did, does he ever uh, elaborate on that at all? Well, um, to some degree, Meyer himself has met uh, members of other races. Uh, he has interacted, as a matter of fact, and I think the interactions may still be going on, with a, a member of a race that is is the progenitor race of our Asian population on Earth. He has met people of all skin colors, and some we would find quite unusual, I'm sure, since the Pleiarans state that they're in the universe with the nearly uh, 41 million human races, there's 343 different skin colors of people. Huh. So that gives you an opportunity to try and think about that one. He has been on board the, um, the large mothership of these people, and he has met uh, beings from other worlds, there. Uh, he has seen android beings and he's described the, the inner workings a bit of the, the mothership and what these beings do and what they look like and uh, I think some of this is also in the book. Uh, it's, it is truly mind-boggling. As a matter of fact, a funny thing happened today. Uh, friends of mine in Australia who read German better than I do <laughs> sent me a transcript chunk, a little piece where Billy was speaking with this man Quetzal one of the extraterrestrials, and they were talking about some information about the U.S. moon landings and the, and the moon, and the Pleiaran reaffirmed to him that the first U.S. moon landing, 1969, I think, uh, did not occur, that it was hoaxed as a means to try to preempt the energy that the Russians were mounting in that direction, but that I think that there were maybe five subsequent events or something up to 1972, uh, that were you know, actual landings, but they said the first one wasn't. Huh, very it was, you know, pardon me? Very interesting. Again, there, 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 there's, there's some people out there that are making pretty cogent arguments uh, to that uh, effect as well. So. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I yeah, I don't know a lot of stuff. In my case, I can't prove one way or the other. But he was mentioning, and he said to the guy, he said, why is it that they, uh, people with all this talk about the moon, they never mention... The two areas at uh, the area at the north and at the south pole, where there's perpetual sunlight on the moon, where it's always sunny in those areas, and, and he was kind of—I don't know if it was a rhetorical question—he was asking the ET. So I called up a um, an astronomer today and uh, asked—I uh, got a, a woman at the Griffith Observatory, and I asked, um, "Well, do you know anything about the?" any areas in the moon that are in perpetual sunlight and she didn't and we were both kind of looking at the internet and there was something and it was dated this year 2005 where NASA discovered an area where a rim of a crater or something some area around a crater seems to be in perpetual sunlight and would therefore make a good base 
Now that's 2005, and I'm waiting for my friends to send me because I think the, the contact on the moon information from Meyer was back in the 80s or so. Uh, and I, we just keep on finding stuff all the time that's already in copyrighted books and in, in these unalterable documents that he's got. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's just a whole other thing. I mean, when I got the documents from the guy in Sedona, I took them home and I read them, and two years later I opened up a newspaper, and there's a new discovery about A-bomb testing and the ozone damage from Lawrence Livermore Labs. And then I go, wait a minute, why doesn't that seem new to me? Huh. And I pull out the dusty documents, and there, there's the same information from 13 years before, in 75, and then... Another thing, reprinted in the same document from like 1954 or 56, Meyer's discussing that information being told to him by these play on 32 years earlier. Outrageous. It, it is. You just go, oh, you know, what's wrong with the world? All right. Well, look, let's. Uh, that leads me to one final question, I guess, before we get to the top of the hour, and then we'll, and then after the top of the hour, we'll talk about uh, these predictions and prophecies that you're talking about that have been documented now, some of them for 30 years or close to 30 years. But my last question before we get to that is uh, general knowledge uh, in government circles and this sort of thing. In other words, the 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 assumption that I make is that there is a general knowledge among at least some high-level people in governments, whether it's the U.S. government or other governments around the world, that do know about these people uh, and these craft and, 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 the, and the history of interaction that they've had with, with our species, not, a, not to mention just with, uh, with Billy himself. But mm -hmm. uh, it seems that, that, that that's a question that needs to be asked, but I guess I need, need your answer on it. Did, uh, who who well, all knows about this stuff? Well, there is not a, an intelligence service on the face of the planet that doesn't know. Um, this goes back even before Meyer's case was public. After the Second World War, around the Second World War, the, the Nazis had been developing disc craft with the help of some ETs who thought that they were going to use it for good until they, uh, you know, shows you not extraterrestrial doesn't mean always extra right or extra right. Right, again, they can make these, mistakes, right. They made mistakes, and then once they knew they made mistakes, they, um, they corrupted the, the plans and the uh, information so that things wouldn't work properly. But some Nazis did flee into South America, like Brazil and other places, with some of this technology. The plans also fell into the hands of the Allies. So right, right, there was a group of Germans for some time based in South America who were flying around these things and were accounting for uh, you know, a good number of the sightings of so-called UFOs, although they couldn't leave the, you know, the, the atmosphere of the planet and really fly in space. And these guys were just getting older. They weren't reproducing. And, and by now they, I think, are all dead or just about to the last one. But Meyer was told, and he told me twice, last year and this year, that the U.S., Canada, France, Russia, and China all have variations on, you know, uh, you know sophisticated uh, flying craft that's developed mainly for weaponry purposes. Right, the U.S. Right. has secret military fighter craft. And the majority of sightings in the U.S. are our own craft. Okay. But... You know, it goes on. Uh, certainly, uh, Meyer is well known 
at the higher echelons of U.S. intelligence, probably Russian, uh, the Swiss built a, a military base right up the road from him. After he, he had moved in and renovated his farmhouse, uh, there was a CIA uh, set up to um, to monitor the goings of his group, and they uh, they told one of the investigators off the record that they had a couple of photographs of the craft hovering above the center, and they wouldn't turn it over to the investigators, and they said basically this conversation never happened, but we know what's going on there. So Meyer, um, while there have been assassination attempts and everything else in his life, at this point uh, it looks like, since he doesn't appear to pose a real threat to the powers that be, that there isn't any more of an attempt, hopefully won't be, mm -hmm. to, you know, to harm him. Wow, astonishing. And and uh, and maybe they think, well, we've tried 19 or 21 times, and uh, it's obviously yeah, it's been working too well. So, <laughs> well, you yeah. know, the, the uh, uh, in all seriousness, the the research that's been done uh, on post World War II uh, research and development on exotic flying craft and exotic uh, 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 technologies such as anti gravity and uh, right. Some of these sorts of things is, is pretty well documented as, well, documented as well. And so what the, the big question is, how successful have they been? Uh, and there are some people that say, well, they've been very successful. And, and by they, I mean uh, earthbound uh, governments and militaries. Right. Uh, but, but certainly uh, it's, it's well documented that that research was uh, ongoing, and we, and, and we have a tremendous amount of evidence uh, about what the Germans were doing in as early as the mid thirties uh, not yeah. you know and, uh, and and as you mentioned, many of those scientists uh, were recruited after the war by uh, by the u s government and also by the Russian government, and a lot of them just bailed out and went to South America and other places, like you say, so yeah again, uh, certainly uh, verifiable evidence to that effect as well yep you'll, you'll find that kind of thing things get corroborated and then you'll find, you know, people will read something in mind and say, oh, this is going to be preposterous, and then somehow it gets, you know, validated later on, but that's going on all the time. It's wow. something. It is something. All right, well, look, uh, Michael, we're just about at the top of the hour here. Let's take another music break here. You've, you've, you've got me thinking about the Foo Fighters, so we're going to play a song by the Foo Fighters here in a second. But, uh, Great. Now, uh, I'll go grab a, a cup of water. Yeah, grab a cup of water, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. My guest is Michael Horn. We're talking about the Billy Meyer Contact D story, which has been going on now for some 60 years. We'll come back. Uh, since we've done a good bit of background now, we'll come back, and we'll start talking a little bit more about uh, what Billy says uh, the Plierans have told him and what... Uh, uh, what he has documented in many, many, many of his writings over the years about things that would take place, things that may take place, and things that have taken place. There's a tremendous amount of information on prophecy and predictions, many of which have come true. And we're going to ask Mr. Horn about those and see if he can uh, explain some of those things to us, okay? All right, uh, this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Check us out on the web at www.radioorbit.com. And you can also get to my guest website tonight at www.theyfly.com. And uh, I'm going to give out the phone number, too, because I think uh, probably at the bottom of the hour here at, uh, at 1.30, we'll probably open up the phone lines and take some calls. I've had a couple people trying to call. Uh, I've, seen the, I've seen the light uh, flashing here a couple of times. So let's take a few phone calls uh, toward the end of the show uh, if, if that works out. And in the meantime, let's just uh, listen to some music here. 
And back in a few minutes with Michael Horn and the Billy Meyer story. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia.
right, yeah, it's Foo Fighters on Radio Orbit KOPN. That song's called Down at the Park. And this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. My guest tonight is Michael Horn from the website www.theyfly.com. And we've been discussing the Billy Meyer contact story for the last hour. And we're going to continue with that right now with Michael Horn. Michael, let's... Uh, Let's. Uh, we, we've done, we've done a, a good bit of background now, and I think we've legitimized this story as much as we can uh, for those, as you say, with eyes to see or with ears to hear. And I'd like to get a little bit further now into this idea of prophecy and prediction and talk about some of the things that, that Billy has documented and told us uh, that he's concerned about and that, and that, and that we might be concerned, uh, pardon me, concerned about as well. Sure. Uh, where would you like to start? Well, um, I guess the first place to start is let's talk about the documentation, about how, uh, as we get into this, how uh, the listeners can be reasonably uh, certain that this stuff was actually documented uh, before the fact. Sure. Well, there's a couple things. As I mentioned, Myers started what are called the... Uh, Official contacts in 1975, and what happened was they told him, along with all the stuff about what they were to be called, that they wanted him to number the first contact uh, on January 28, 1975, as you know, as number one, the first contact. They also wanted him to number each sentence that they spoke in the transcript when he would transcribe the conversations later on. And he said, "Well, why should I, you know, number your sentences?" Again, they said, in the future, people are going to accuse you of being a hoaxer. Amazing. Uh, not only your films and your photos and all of this stuff, but when they start to see that we, you know, have given you this information, they won't think it's, you know, it's possible. They will think that you went back and, and you know, hoaxed the documents and put things in after the events happened. By numbering the, the contact, contact one, two, three, four, et cetera, and numbering each sentence that we speak wherein we're also giving you this kind of information, right. you create a basically unalterable document. And on top of that, since you'll be sending these around and people in Europe will have them and ultimately in other countries and other languages, there will be no way for, for you to go back and alter these. And everybody will have the same thing with the same numbers for the same sentences. Okay. Right. I think you're, you're following that. I do, yeah. Okay. Well, um... Meyer dutifully went about this and still does. Every sentence that they speak is numbered. And so when something comes up where, uh, let's say I see something in the news, which certainly happens every now and then, and I go, well, wait a minute. I saw that at a certain time. How am I going to be able to you know, validate that? Well, I, I look back to find the source. Now, there are some... Uh, pieces of information that the sentences were not numbered in, but they were included in the numbered documents because maybe they were told to him at another time or what have you. There's not a lot of that, but there is some of it. But let's just talk about the numbered stuff for the most part, and then we'll, we'll talk about things like the Enoch prophecies, which aren't numbered. Right, right. Which, uh, yeah. So an example would be that uh, I mentioned to you the A-bomb testing and the ozone damage. 
and that I found this article and then, you know, it caused me to look into the Meyer material and then realize that, you know, my goodness, he, he was told this stuff years before it was discovered and officially known. Then after that, and I have a document on my site called Proof Beyond a Reasonable Doubt that laundry lists a lot of these where you can actually go and see what, you know, what it was that was said. Well, what I did after I started to see these different things popping up, and I was able to go back to the document and say, well, there it is, there it is, there it is. I, I took about 60 of them, and I went online. And I would take an item, you know, where they said something will happen at a particular time and place of a particular nature, and I looked up and I wanted to see, did this event happen? Or this, was this discovery made? Okay. If so, when? What's the first earliest publication of it? That's very important. Right, right, right. Because you know, does, did he have access to foreknowledge? Right. In every case, every case, the event occurred. The details coincided almost either exactly or almost exactly with what Meyer had been told. <coughs> Excuse me. And in every case but one that I've found so far, Meyer is the first person to publish the information. Wow. That's pretty difficult to crack. And anybody can go and look at my article, see the things that I've listed there and, uh, and the dates that are given for them, which we have in the in the, um, in the contact reports, all these numbered uh, contacts. We've got the sentences where all this stuff is told to him. And, and they can go online and try and find it. Now, there's a skeptic that, and I give him credit for this, actually. He tried to debunk the, the case. And what he did, he found me and the case via a skeptic's website, the group that was, you know, trying to say that they had duplicated Myers photos. Right, CFI. So he, yeah, so he found an article or two of mine on my website about the Jupiter information. Well, ah, well Jupiter? Ab about the uh, about the ring, the rings on Jupiter, yeah. The rings on Jupiter, the the conditions of the moon Io, mm -hmm. and the conditions of the moon Europa. Of Europa, exactly. Okay. Well, he um, he focused in on this. Jupiter stuff and sequestered himself away in a library and online and everything else for about three days or so, somewhere in Utah, I think it was. And he came out with this, you know, long thing trying to prove that this was all a hoax on Myers' part. When I went through his whole document, I noticed a very, very critical thing. He could not show that the information that Meyer had published was actually known at the time that Meyer published his document number one. And a very, very, very critical thing about the moon Io, the earliest known publication of the information confirming that Io was, is the most volcanically active body in our solar system, that information was not published until March 12th of 1979. Meyer published his information I think it was October 18th, 1978, or October 19th, whatever it is. And here's the kicker. Lieutenant Colonel Stevens was given this information on Jupiter and had it in his possession on March 9th of 79. Now, four days before that is when the probe got to, to Jupiter. Right, right. That, that, that was the, Voy the Voyager probe, if I remember yeah, correctly, right? The exactly. first Voyager probe, right. Right. So Wendell Stevens is in Switzerland when the Voyager's arriving, and he's meeting with Meyer, who already has these transcripts typed up. 
Meyer shares this information with me, and here's a really fascinating thing that happened. And he says to Meyer, I'd like to have that information and take it back with me. So Billy says to Eva, this woman, go and make a copy. At that time, I guess they had like a mimeograph machine or something. Go and make a copy for Wendell of this information. And at that point, the phone rings, and Billy has to go off and answer his phone. Well, Eva goes off, and she makes a copy and gives Wendell this you know, bunch of papers. And as Wendell's on his way home, or when he gets to the States, he looks, and he sees something rather remarkable. Not only does he have all this information about Jupiter and Io and Europa, which is, some of which isn't confirmed until three days after he arrives. Right. I mean, this blows it out of the water. But there's ten predictions in there that Meyer was given in numbered sequence, again, by these people, that he wasn't supposed to, that Stevens was never supposed to receive because, as Stevens knew, Meyer was not allowed to publish some of the predictions prior to their occurring. Not the prophecies, but the predictions. The difference being prophecies are things that will likely occur if we don't change certain behaviors, thoughts, actions, all that. Predictions are unalterable future events that will and must occur based, again, on the laws of cause and effect. Hmm. Now, he looks down and he sees this laundry list of ten events. And again, I have this on, on the website. People can look at that for free. I mean, it was like, I think one of them had happened, which was the Jonestown Massacre, I believe it happened. But they, of course, gave specific numbers and everything, of the number of people dead and the intrigues behind that. They talked about the invasion of North Vietnam by the Chinese, the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, the death of the Shah of Iran, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini taking over, the death of Tito, uh, the death of, the, uh, let's see, of Indira Gandhi. That was the last huh. one to be fulfilled. All this stuff, they were like ten of these predictions, and nine of them weren't fulfilled until after Stevens not only brought him with him, he got two other guys, another military guy and the director of the Flandral Planetarium in Tucson, Arizona, to read this stuff, to sign off on it, and they hid it away because they knew that Meyer was not to... This was an accident. Billy went off to answer the phone. Eva runs off the whole thing, and here Stevens is sitting with ten events that haven't happened in our world yet. This is a military guy who started investigating UFOs in 1947. A very, very highly professional, highly competent guy, and he his mind was blown. Right, that was uh, and it was Wendell Stevens, right? Yeah, yeah, and his, yeah, his you name. You just call him Wendell. Yeah, yeah, yeah his, his his name comes up in the in the literature as well. So amazing, amazing, amazing. So <sighs> this guy who tried to debunk this then in his debunking attempt, says, well, obviously what happened is that Meyer had access to this information and Wendell Stevens lied. Hmm. Well, I went, whoa, wait a second here. First of all, I said, apart from the fact that we have this numbered document and it was shared with other people with, in, you know, in Switzerland and, and Wendell is an honorable guy that you better be able to prove your l lousy aspersions against, um, it doesn't make sense because the probe only got there on the fifth. Now, Wendell had the stuff in his possession in the fourth. What we have to believe, and of course we, there's no proof, is that somehow Billy Meyer, a one-armed Swiss farmer who's trying to survive assassins, raise a family, meet with ETs, subject himself to an ongoing investigation with three, four other people around, somehow gets wind of the probe arriving there. He somehow finds the information in German, because at that point his English and still isn't 
enough for a technical conversation, right. has to read and digest it all, figure out a way to create a story about it, and insert it into an already published numbered document. I mean, you know, sorry, folks, it don't go down that way. Right. Not, not, not to mention, you got you got Pestalozzi who's involved in it now too, and, right. you, got, and you got the guy from Flandau or Flandro. Right. Uh, so yeah, there's right. more, more than just one guy involved in it too. So. Yeah. Very interesting. So, so you have to have then a conspiracy with no payoff, since Meyer is a poor guy who can't offer anybody any money for this. There's nobody who's ever come forward to say, I helped him, I did it, this is how we did this, this is how we did that. These people would be working in Hollywood by now with a special effects. Right. So this is why I have a newsletter. People should read the newsletters. They're free, too, at the site. And you can see, I talk about the pieces of the puzzle here. There's so many pieces to this puzzle. It's beyond the ability of a team of people to pull themselves. Yeah, not to mention, like you say, a one-armed Swiss farmer trying to raise a family with yeah. no money. Yeah. Oh yeah. Whew. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's talk about some more of what uh, what, what was written. And I, w- I want to clarify also. You mentioned this difference between prophecy and prediction. And I think that's an important. Right. Uh, I think that's an, an important clarification. Uh, and let me make sure that I've got it clear. Prophecy is something that we can still affect. In other words, uh, if we change right. our ways or change something, it can uh, the outcome of that can be uh, can be determined in a different manner. However, prediction is something that's going down. The 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 the, uh, the cause and effect is already set in stone, and it's going to happen. Yes. Okay. That's right. And we're not. And that's the reason they don't um, tell those is because what they say is when something is it, let's say a a, um, a cosmic event, and it is uh, how do you put it? It's it's got to happen if you mess with it, if you try to get in front of that. Uh, that pyramid, uh, the, pardon me, that pendulum as it's, re- as it's returning, you are going to complicate and make far worse mm. the, uh, you know, the outcome. And it, it, you will just make a much, much bigger mess if you, if you do something like that. So okay. what, they are, what they are saying is uh, we don't want the most of the... Um, predictions, most, not all, but most of the predictions to be known, because people will freak out and they will, you know, try to interfere to stop it. We tell you the prophecies so that you will take action, so that you will, you see? Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. for instance, in, uh, on Monday, November 23rd of 1981, Meyer was given prophetic information. The first um, information that would, would be called the Enoch prophecies or Enoch prophecies. And I just want to show you, I'm just going to talk about one little line here because I, uh, I still have this document. It's now I, it's scanned into my computer. I first uh, got it to read in 1986. So here's just a little line that's in the middle of a lot of prophecy, uh, perhaps predictions, about uh, Europe and the world and things that are coming. And it's... It, I'll just jump in at this sentence. Italy and France will be shaken due to sans culottes who murderously and by arson destroy every order. Paris will be destroyed from within and burnt down. The inhabitants, inhabitants themselves are those who lay Paris into rubble and ashes via murder, arson, and revolution, while Italy also falls due to other things. Okay, now that little bit, sans culottes, 
if you look that up, it's like revolutionaries, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, they're talking here about France falling due to revolutionaries burning down Paris. These people are within the country. Okay, now this is 1981. Right. In the, in the 1987 Enoch prophecies, they spelled it out more. It was like this. And it will be that the fanatics of Islam will rise up against the countries of Europe, and all will shake and quiver. Everything in the West will be destroyed. England will be conquered and thrown down to the lowest level of misery. I think we may have just seen the beginning of something there. And the fanatics and warriors of Islam will retain their power for a long time. However, not only Europe will be affected, but ultimately all the countries and peoples of the earth, as the great horror expands to a war that will encompass the entire world. France will not only be invaded by the aggressors from the outside, but will also be conquered from within as a result of collaborative forces and other forces. This can be envisioned as being the many foreigners of a different religion living in France at that time, and specifically Islam, which will be this force working from within. Now, I picked this document up in Switzerland in 2002. So, while I read the other one, but had the first hint of this in 86, and it was printed first in 81. This one from 1987, I didn't get until uh, 2002, and it was in German, and we have to have it translated, along with the rest of the Enoch prophecy. Right. Um, there is some very harsh stuff about the U.S. here, but I don't want to go there yet. I want to, you know, just uh, focus a little bit on this, because these are warnings still, and that's, you know, in in that way. Right, in other words, those, those, those were originally given as, uh, again, as we spoke of before, they were given as prof prophecy, not as prediction. Right. Okay. And I think we saw the beginning of the, um, quote-unquote, fanatics of Islam rising up against the countries of Europe, quite possibly, with the attacks in Spain. Now, look, let's acknowledge that there are people that maybe correctly say it really isn't Islam, or it's uh, CIA, or it's this or it's that. All I can say is, number one, there are clearly elements that identify themselves openly as Islamic and, you know, we would say extremist. There is a wave of this. Uh, my own opinion, I won't run into a lot of political stuff here, but my own opinion is that the U.S. has become the most successful recruiting arm of Al-Qaeda, if, <laughs> if it could be you know, imagined, uh, by, by our actions. And I think that what we're seeing about the warnings here, about England being conquered and thrown down, uh, we cannot underestimate, based on the laws of cause and effect and based on all of these things, we cannot underestimate these paths, you know, fulfilling themselves. But if we use this information and determine that, that the source was credible based on 54 years of prophetically accurate information, we would say, well, why would we get this Enoch prophecy? It seems pretty, you know, grim. Well, the reason we got it was so we would, you know, get a little bit of a shock and would turn to the other body of material to see who's this guy Meyer and what's this about wait a minute this stuff's pretty damn accurate all the way through we don't have erroneous material here let's go back now to this Enoch stuff and what are they telling us will happen if we don't change and that's why I work with the prophecies basically to help make them wrong not to just go in the air and scare people and say right, right. America's going to be destroyed no this is what has been foretold by a source at this point 
that I can only say is unparalleled and impeccable and not trying to harm us. Well, um, let me ask you another question then with regard to that. You mentioned erroneous information. So the, so the question would be that if, if there, certainly there is a bunch of legitimate information that has been verified and we can verify it now historically. So if that's the case, the only, uh, as a skeptic, you would say that there would, if someone was going to just get lucky, what they would have to do is publish a tremendous amount of material, and then probably the great majority of that material would be incorrect, and then they would grab, uh, just pick and choose the stuff that was right. So, in other words, you're telling me that, that, that this huge body of erroneous material that would have to be present if it were a sham uh, doesn't exist, in other words. I haven't been able to find it, uh, and I've been through everything available in English, and I've got some friends who are going through it all in German and haven't been able to find it. I mean, yeah. it's, right. it's uncanny. Now, I will say this. They have given him this information. They have, they have played around with Meyer at times, much to the chagrin, for their own agendas, for whatever the reasons were. Um, they have told him things, not in terms of predictions and prophecies, but rather just information that was a little off and deliberately, and, and there's a, a scientist named Dr. James Deerdorf, and he, he's done research into another aspect of the case that we may or may not be able to get into, but it's phenomenal. And what he said is, what it looks like to him is that there is what's called, uh, you know, uh, not only deliberate disinformation, but, uh, oh, he uses uh, something, deniability, and I forget the adjective in front of it. Plausible. A, a level of deniability, let's just say here that leaves an out for people who cannot handle this as a reality. <laughs> Plausible deniability, right, that's it. Right. So that, because their goal is not to inflict upon us the uh, unflinchable, uh, unavoidable reality of their existence, because that would be impinging upon the free will of literally billions of people, many of whom would go crazy, uh, would, would panic, kill themselves, venerate them as gods, try to attack them if they could. This is not right. what that is about. So they have this oblique, uh, very difficult kind of approach to us with some you know, uh, escape hatches. But what they haven't done is they haven't said there will be such and such an event over here at this time and, all, and then given bad information. Right. I cannot find it. As a matter of fact, tonight I was scrolling through the document from 81, and, and 80 actually is information there from prior to 81, uh, but it contained the 1981 ENAC one, and I, I found a contact 135, I think it is, from October of 1980, and I was scrolling through it, and I was looking for something uh, on, on England, and I'm, I noticed that there were, in that document, there were some, uh, what do you call it, predictions, and it had to do uh, let's see if I can recall what it was. I, it may have well been pertaining to first uh, the. Oh, I know what it was. It was actually in um, in the document that uh, the Jupiter information is in, and the predictions about uh, Iran and all. Because there is also one of the predictions was that there would be the Iranian embassy would be you know hostages right. taken and right. all that. That's in there. Well, after that, uh, in that same document. They talk about some other occurrences in England, and they say that they're going to take place. Um, there would be uh, the thing with the Shah of Iran. Then there would be 
an, an event that took place, an earthquake, uh, Kurnan or Kerman earthquake. They said 7,000 people would be killed. Mm-hmm. And they said after that, uh, a third occurrence will follow these other two, and this event will be a sign that indicates that the prophecies about England will begin to fulfill themselves. Mm-hmm. And then Billy says, oh, actually, I have it in front of me. Um, Billy says, this could only refer to the attempt on the Queen's life, as you once mentioned to me, would be such a sign of the time, which shall be the fundamental start of the beginning fulfillment of the prophecy. And Semyaze, the female astronaut, says to him, your ability to remember, as usual, is excellent. Yes, only a short time after the severe earthquake in Iran, the English Queen will be attacked by a youth not quite 20 years old, while the Queen, however, does not suffer any harm and gets away with only a shock. This, because the gunshot of the youth will only be loaded with fake ammunition. And Billy says, you, you mean the attacker's cannon only contains blank cartridges? And she says, surely. And, and he says, this, that I do not understand. And she says, that has its particular reasons which, which shall not be mentioned publicly. <laughs> well, I thought, wait a minute, what's this queen attack on the Queen of England? I don't remember that. And I went online, and sure enough, I think the guy was 17 or 18, and he, and in 1981, after this was written, this guy fired blanks at the Queen of England. Amazing. And he was taken into custody, and she wasn't harmed. And, of course, uh, when Semyaze says this has particular reasons won't be mentioned publicly, we can only guess as to what that would mean. Was that a set-up thing? Or, you know, was it to make the Queen look good? Who knows? But this was right in... I didn't even document this one when I pulled out those other... Ten, um, you know, predictions. Right, and quite right. frankly, there's more in this document. The more I went on, I said, "Oh gosh, I, I didn't get this. Uh, I didn't even look at this one, which checked out about an earthquake in the Philippines, which would kill approximately 130 people." Uh, and there's all this stuff, and it's just casually sewn throughout all of this. Then there was a, a Sichuan earthquake in China that would kill about 4,700 people, and they just tell them all this stuff. And when I go on to the, um, you know, search engines, that stuff is there. Astounding. It is astounding. And, you know, we're preoccupied with War of the World nonsense. Right. What are you going to do? Right, right. Well, speaking of that, I think um, we should probably mention the World Trade Center. Oh, yeah. Because I know that's in there as well. And... Uh, I, I don't think many people know know that it's in there, but I'm convinced now that it that it's in there uh, from the research that I've done after you sort of kickstarted me. But I did some work uh, outside of yours and, and looked around on my oh. own and some other stuff. And sure, I mean, this stuff uh, this is real. So, uh, or at least it sure seems so. So why don't let, yeah. let's talk about that real fast and then um, yeah. uh, I, I, I was going to take a break but let's not take a break let's just keep going here uh, because okay. uh, I want to talk about the World Trade Center and I think then we'll open the phones and you tell me when you're ready to and then we'll have uh, we'll let some people any old time you want I'll, I'll run this by you now that what you're talking about um, let me also say that I'm, we have another mention even prior to this uh, and I'm w- waiting to see if we can actually confirm the dating on it because it wasn't a numbered sequence, but it was in with a bunch of other predictions. And it was from 1984 where they told Meyer specifically that there would be an attack on the 11th of September 2001 that would kill thousands of Americans, which would be wrongly attributed to certain parties. Huh. I'll leave it there. Now, let me come to in the Enoch uh, 
prophecies. I, I'll get to the second paragraph. I'll go into that thing. The first paragraph I do read because I think it's very pertinent to what we're looking at right now in the world and people can think about it. The military politics of the USA will likewise know no limits, as needed will their economic and political institutions, which will be focused on building and operating a world police force, as it is the case already for a long time. But that will not be enough, and in the guise of a so-called peaceful globalization, American politics will aspire to gain absolute control of the world, conquering supremacy, concerning supremacy in economy. Now, here's the paragraph that we're talking about. The United States of this, I'll just apologize, it's kind of harsh, I'm only apologizing for springing it on anybody that's just come in now and doesn't understand this is a prophecy, uh, it doesn't have to occur, it's just the way the lines would converge if we don't alter things, at least according to them. The United States of America will be a country of total destruction. The cause for this will be manifold with her global conflicts which are continuously instigated by her and which will continue far into the future America is creating enormous hatred against her worldwide in many countries as a result America will experience enormous catastrophes which will reach proportions barely imaginable to people of earth the destruction of the WTC i.e. the World Trade Center by terrorists will only be the beginning. That was 1987. My God. Yeah. Astounding. So I'm not endorsing that. No. I'm relaying it. All right, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. People misunderstand. I'm with you. And for those of you who are just uh, tuning in, if you happen to be just tuning in and you haven't heard the, uh, the, the last hour and a half of this program, um, my guest is Michael Horn, and we're talking about the contact... Uh, the extraterrestrial contact story of Edward Albert Meyer, better known as Billy Meyer. And the stuff that Michael is relating to us now uh, is uh, in the context of this last hour and a half. So, uh, as Michael says, don't, uh, don't, don't fly off the handle if you just heard that. But uh, it is something that was written uh, and documented over 15 years ago, close to 20 years ago now. And, uh, and certainly this is one that we all know uh, did come to pass and I think that your point is not uh, uh, to uh, uh, to slap the face of the American people or, or, or America uh, as a country but again as you say to point out that these things have been talked about they have been prophesied and if we want to to change uh, or, or to affect the future such that that stuff doesn't continue to occur and get more intense and more difficult and more uh, bloody and ugly that we have the opportunity to change those things but uh, but we've got uh, we got to get we got to get our act together apparently yes and, and just one last thing and it'd be great if anybody does want to call another question let, I have I to what, let, let, me, let me give the phone number out real fast that way yeah. people can get ready and then you can finish up okay uh, sure. the number here you guys if you'd like to give a call. Uh, to me at the station here and ask a question or make a comment uh, to myself and my guest, Michael Horn. You can call me here at 573-443-8255. That's 573-443-8255. Give us a call and, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll see if we can, uh, can answer your question. Okay, Mike, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was doing some searching on the Internet. You know, I've spent a lot of time on it. 
and I found a site, and I'll eventually be putting up the info on my on my site. It, it, uh, there was a page, and it had two listings on uh, subsequent pages. The first listing had 35 U.S.-backed coups against other countries' governments in mm. the past 55 years. Yeah, I'm familiar with many page of them. Yeah. Pardon me? I said I'm familiar with many of them, yeah. Uh, you probably are far more than I. I was not, I'm not a politically active, involved person. I'll just tell you, this is this has woken me up, the Meyer thing, more than anything. And then there's a page with 158 U.S. interventions, which means attacks, uh, bombings, destabilizations, wars, whatever, in the past 56 years. That's nearly 200. And I don't know if you got them all, but that's nearly 200 times in the past little more than half century that in our name, as citizens of this country, we attacked and interfered with the lives of lots of people, none of whom attacked us to want the interference. Okay. In the in the universal laws of cause and effect category, if anybody uh, cares to contemplate how the pendulum might be coming back, <coughs> especially if we don't do anything to straighten ourselves out at this point, the stuff I read is certainly uh, not an unlikely outcome of half a century's worth of causes. Wow. Wow. Yeah. All right, uh, let's see here. I think I've got somebody here that wants to ask a question. Who's this? Uh, you're on Radio Orbit. Hello. Yeah, um, my name is Jeff, and I uh, just wanted to uh, um, thank you for what you, the research you've been doing. I've been following this uh, for uh, since the mid, uh, early to mid-'80s, and I've been fascinated wow. by a lot of... Uh, I've read some of the contact notes, and uh, you mentioned... Uh, uh, something about the assassination attempts, and uh, yeah. you, you also mentioned uh, James Deerdorf, which uh, I've been kind of chomping at the bit to ask this question uh, sure. about the Talmud of Emmanuel that uh, yep. was discovered. Uh, I guess uh, Semyase, uh, or was it the earlier uh, being? I can't remember. It was. I in, think it may have been Asket because yeah. it was in '63. Right, mm -hmm. and uh, Billy Meyer was actually was it in Egypt? I guess, or in, in uh, somewhere in the Middle East. Well, no. You mean regarding the, where it was discovered and all that? You're right. Didn't he discover it? And uh, he's a co-discoverer and translated it. Yeah, the, the translator <laughs> is also the co-discoverer. There was a man who was called Isa Rashid, mm -hmm. and he was a friend of Myers. He was an ex-Greek Orthodox priest who uh, read Aramaic and also uh, had knowledge in German, and. Uh, he and Meyer were led, I think, telepathically. Certainly, Issa Rashid didn't know exactly who was behind the, the urgings or, you know, what have you. But to the, they were on the uh, outskirts of old Jerusalem uh, on a road, and they were led to an area where there was like a, a hillside type of a thing with a, a small hole visible that uh, apparently nobody done anything with for a long time. And Meyer and, and Issa Rashid dug out this hole, and went inside to what was an ancient, ancient tomb. So let's let's put the pieces in place. Jerusalem, ancient tomb. Mm -hmm. And inside there were stones that covered the floor, and they dug around and they lifted the stones, and underneath there were four scrolls that were wrapped first in animal skins, which were covered in some form of a resin. Right. They took them out and they found that um, they were written in Aramaic, 
a good portion of them were legible, and the scrolls were entrusted to Isa Rashid, who I think was living in Jerusalem <coughs> excuse me, at the time, and the agreement was he would begin to translate these and send them to Meyer. Mm. That's 1963. Uh, in, in the time that he had spent doing that, by 1970, he had sent Meyer, oh, from a quarter to a third of the scrolls were translated. And uh, this was quite earth-shaking to him from what he was learning as he was translating all of this uh, because it appeared to him that he was translating the original writings or teachings of a man that we have come to be known as Jesus right. but there was no mention of that name anywhere to be found in the text that he could see but there was a man named Emmanuel spelled with that ubiquitous J hmm. and uh, he sent what he had translated on to Meyer and said to him I, I'll be in touch whenever I can but people have found out I have this and I've got to get out of here he took his family and he fled into Lebanon into a um, one of those refugee villages and uh, he sequestered the, all the scrolls and the walls of the building there within a short period of time the Israelis came in and bombed that refugee camp that, that particular place he and his family escaped with their lives but the scrolls apparently were destroyed Oh boy. The, uh, a few years later, after he and his family had made their way into Iraq and into Baghdad, they were machine gunned to death. And what the, the story goes that they were slain by the Mossad. Okay, so Meyer now has a German translation of an Aramaic, uh, you know, scrolls that he was the co-discoverer of. And in there are very familiar things such as the Sermon of the Mount, etc., etc., and other things not so familiar. And he publishes it in German first, and then an English translation with the German next to it is published and attracts the attention of James Deerdorf, a retired professor from Oregon State University, who, who thinks, oh boy, here's another Bible hoax. Right. And he wants to get involved, right? You remember all this, Jeff? Yeah. Okay. Am I over-talking on this? No, this is, this no, is no, wonderful, no. actually, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Jeff, uh, J Jeff asked the question. I wasn't familiar with this idea of the, okay. of the Talmud. Because of the there's a link to Deardorff's site from my site where you can really blow your mind, because yeah. Deardorff also has done phenomenal work on the photographic examination that proves beyond a doubt that Meyer's photographing real UFOs. That's a whole other thing. His site's brilliant. Well, anyhow, after a year or two, whatever it is, Deardorff comes out with his own companion book called Celestial Teachings, and he says, look, I've studied this stuff. I researched the New Testament. I've gone back and forth, and what we have here appears to be the original writings upon which the book of Matthew was actually based, but the unique thing is that it resolves about 300 inconsistencies hmm. that scholars have noted, some which were only noted after, mm -hmm. after the scrolls were not only discovered but translated, and he said this is a mind-boggling thing. This appears to be the original teachings, if you will, of the man that became called Jesus, and we learn in these writings that Judas was not his betrayer, but a man of a similar name, who did indeed hang himself, a son of a Pharisee, after betraying Emmanuel, and we also learn that Emmanuel did not die on the cross, survived the crucifixion, and left uh, Jerusalem with his mother and uh, his, I think his brother or brothers, and ultimately they made their way through Pakistan and Afghanistan, and they settled in India. His mother died. He married when he was 48 years of old, approximately. He did not marry Mary Magdalene. He married an Indian woman. That's what Meyer told me. And he bore, quote-unquote, numerous descendants. And when he's about somewhere between 105 and 110, he dies. And there's a tomb for Mary and a tomb for 
Isa or Emmanuel in Srinagar, India, with carvings at the base of the tomb with two human feet with nail marks in them and a legend on it written that says, Here lies a great teacher who was crucified in his own land and who came to teach us, or something like that. Wow. So when you pull, when you pull the thread on the Meyer case, you start to find out what it's really about, a lineage of prophets going back on this planet over 13,000 years and in truth, <laughs> millions of years. Wow. Wow. All right. Well, thank you, Jeff, for that wonderful question. That was great. We wouldn't have gotten to that otherwise because I, I was unfamiliar with the uh, this, oh, yeah. this Talmud of Emmanuel. And, and in fact, uh, there's there's such this is such a huge body of information. I mean, uh, we could talk for a long, long time about it. I'm just sort of, as you and Jeff were talking, I was sort of paging through my notes here, and there's still there's so much stuff uh, uh, that, that that we haven't touched on. I'm looking at. I, know. I mean, it's it, it's absolutely outrageous, and uh, one one that sort of catches my eye right now. Um, well, let me ask you a follow up really really quickly though on Deerdorf. What was his? Uh, you said he was a professor at Oregon State, or, or he had actually like been a professor. I think his his expertise there was in meteorology, and I don't know. There was something else, and then he got involved with comparative religions. Okay, so and, he so he was a scholar of sorts, at least in this particular. Oh point. yeah. Right. And he, he's he's done some remarks. Well, when you go to his, his when you look at my links and you go to look at his site, you decide for yourself. Okay. This guy is very together, and I know Jim. He's he's, he's sharp. Right. All right. Well. Uh, all right. Thanks again, Jeff. Um, this, I'm looking at again at the 251st contact, and I see something here that pops out at me. It has to do with this idea of cloning and uh, manipulation yes. of DNA and hybrid warriors being created and all this stuff, yeah. biochips. And again, this yeah. is all stuff that that is uh, it's in the mainstream news now. So uh, uh, whether it's been verified as actually being real or not, uh, that that's yet to be determined. But my own uh, my own personal experience is that uh, if they're talking about it in the mainstream as something that may be coming in the near future, then the odds are it's already happened. Uh, oh yeah. And so so this is something that, that and it, which which sort of jives with with uh, the conversation that we've been having for the last 20 minutes about war and uh, and and uh, and this uh, this dominance, this idea of outward pushing dominance that uh, that, that has been dominating the uh, the American political and military scene for at least uh, since uh, since World War II and probably uh, long before that. Yep. No argument on that. And by the way, um, when Meyer in there, he talks about human and pig DNA will be combined, and right. ultimately they will. Well, I found out that those experiments started in 2004 in Minnesota. At least that's what I found. Uh, that's right in the section. I mean, Meyer's got he foretells the attack on Iraq in there uh, a little cryptically, but he lays out about five things in a row after that, including a warning, very specific, where he says. Um, there is a nuclear power plant near Lyon, France, which is one of 436 on the planet at the time he wrote this, which will have an accident unless somebody's very vigilant there and catches it in time, which is possible. On August 12, 2003, the nuclear power plant near Lyon, France, had an, an accident averted by somebody there who caught it and they vented the hot waters. I mean, that was written in 95 by Meyer, and that... That document is very long, and it's got so much stuff in it. And some of it, you know, either it hasn't happened yet, you could say it never happened, but 
uh, with his level of accuracy, it's certainly worth paying attention. Right. This this stuff that just gets corroborated all the time, the growing of meat. For instance, oh. I, I think it's even in that document where he talks about uh, the way to solve the problems for the you know for vegetarians and for non-vegetarians, so that we don't have to kill animals. Is what the play are and have done, and they grow and culture meat. There was just an article just yes, I, I read it days ago. I read it, Michael. Yeah. I read it, and it, okay. and it, it had to do with uh, it was it was one of these DNA manipulation ideas, and it may have involved nanotechnology. I can't remember, but I, but I I read it myself. I, rem I read yeah, it. I'm looking at July seventh, uh, a Reuters story about laboratories where they're beginning to use uh, you know tissue engineering technology. Yes. Yes. To grow, produce meat. Well, it's in that document. And that, I read that document in '98 for the first time. It was written in '95. It's in the 2001 book. You know, and yet they fly the first edition. Right. For those people that are listening, people get what we're talking about here. People are always looking for help from above. They've been trying to help us for 54 years. My God. And we're too bleeding stupid to get it. Well, I'll tell you something else, and uh, you know. It, inevitably on these programs I always have some sort of flash of synchronicity myself and in this case it took uh, two hours and 50 minutes for it to happen but but let me tell you about the, the why I say that uh, this this idea of of the uh, human and pig DNA being compared yeah. believe it or not uh, a very close friend of mine uh, from high school who I'm still real tight with but not as tight as I used to be uh, went off um, to medical school and became a brilliant uh, doctor, number one in his class at Harvard Medical School, and he's now uh, now a professor at Harvard. And he's one of the youngest professors in the medical school that they've ever had at Harvard. He's 40 years old, but he's been a professor there now for some six years. So, uh, at any rate, and his name is Dan Deschler, Dr. Daniel Deschler, if anybody questions me, okay? Uh, anyway... Uh, Dan and I are very close, and, and one of the first things that he was involved with as a research scientist at Harvard, and this was probably 10 years ago, um, he worked on a combination. What they did was that they were trying to combine human skin with pig skin for, gra mm -hmm. for, for, for grafting onto patients that, had, that, that were burn victims. And, uh, and, and that was the first time I ever heard anything like that. And he, he was very excited about it because it was groundbreaking work. Nobody else had done it before. And he was, uh, it was one of the things that sort of set him on his way. Uh, but, uh, but at any rate, I mean, this is one that nobody can tell me that that, 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 that wasn't done uh, long after this was written by, uh, by Mr. Meyer. And, and again, mm -hmm. I, I have personal verification from a close friend. And again, this is something you just go to the Harvard Medical uh, uh, Archives and you can find it yourself. See, that's it. You have the experience. No skeptic is going to be able to talk you out of your own knowledge. Right. I mean, it happened. It's experience, you know. Yes. Outrageous. Well, I tell you what, Michael. We are. Uh, we've got about. Oh, I don't know. We got about four minutes left or so. I'm sorry we weren't able to take any more calls. We just got. Uh, got too busy there but I'm but let's take these last few minutes and I'll let you uh, sort of uh, finish up any way you'd like because I, I, I think we need to close out with some sort of a, uh, I don't know some sort of a, uh, a close where we can actually leave people with something other than my god yeah. what are we supposed to do here you know well let me that's a good point let me let me start right there the core of what they are uh, uh, 
encouraging us to do, the very essence of it, is to take self-responsibility for our lives. Each individual, they have said, in effect, the leadership is not going to come from the top down. It's too corrupted. Right, that's pretty obvious. If that's not obvious to to people by now, I mean, you know. Exactly. It doesn't take an ET to tell us that. And what they've said is the way you do this is each individual becomes conscious, fully conscious and aware of their thoughts and impulses and their feelings and their actions. They don't let themselves run uh, illogical, um, you know, thoughts without becoming aware of their thinking. Just the mechanism of an awareness, a contemplation, noticing what, a, what you're thinking and believing all the rest. And you start to address yourself first. By becoming responsible for thoughts and actions and feelings, there's a, a kind of a wave that goes out, almost like a web, where people of like mind and like intention start to attract each other <laughs> to you know, discover commonality. And uh, this case is a spiritual case at its core, not a religious one. There are... On my website, you'll even find a thing called Introduction to the Spiritual Teachings. You'll find uh, something we call the 21 points, or what the play are, and wish for the people of the earth, where they talk about not only the self-responsibility, but very specific things as to how to remedy, uh, you know, our problems. And there's, there, our problems are deep. Overpopulation, illegal immigration. They were talking about these things for us a long time ago. And they not only apply to us here, but they apply to our world and right. how things work. And they want us to understand that in, in looking at our thoughts and, and our actions, that cause and effect is an immutable law of life. If you don't want the pendulum coming back and cleaning your clock, don't send it out that way. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. don't push unless you're going to, you know, it's the old, you will reap what you sow, right. you want to others. Right. These old, you know, what goes around comes around. These are things that we know. We've been taught this. They've been philosophical, religious, whatever. If we, individually, each person, in, in their own small way, starts to make the course corrections, and those persons with louder voices or with more impact in this area or that area bring that consciousness into that area, we will go back into a positive evolution. We will mitigate some of the, the damage. We will diminish... Some of this, according to several people, first of all, even the play Iron said, the Berlin Wall fell sooner than they had projected because people took responsibility. As a tool for personal and social transformation, uh, the, the hour is late, the clock is ticking. We will be judged very harshly if we fumble the ball. We are the inheritors of millions and millions of years of successfully lived lives and successful adaptations to changing conditions in the natural world. Now the challenge passes to us, the living, that the yet-to-be-born may have a place to put their feet and a sky to walk under. And that's what the psychedelic experience is about, is caring for, empowering, and building a future that honors the past honors the planet and honors the power of the human imagination. There is nothing as powerful, as capable of transforming itself and the planet as the human imagination. Let's not sell it straight. Let's not
uh, whore ourselves to nitwit ideologies. Let's not give our control over to the least among us. Rather, you know, claim your place in the sun and go forward into the light. The tools are there. The path is known. You simply have to turn your back on a culture that has gone sterile and dead and get with the program of a living world and a re-empowerment of the imagination. Thank you very, very much. Uh, that was the uh, final half of that piece from Terrence McKenna from 1994 that was called Eros and the Eschaton, a little Valentine's Day special and a little uh, a little different uh, sort of angle as usual here. But this is Mike Hagan. You've been listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. Stick around just a few minutes. Carol will be here with Jewish Spectrum. And uh, uh, join me next week. We'll be uh, talking with... Um, uh, we're talking with, oh yeah, George Erickson. We're going to be talking about Atlantis uh, next week, so stick around for that. And uh, thanks for listening. Radio Orbit, KOPN. This is Mike. I'll talk to you next week.